Hello, everybody. How are you doing? I hope you're doing good in these weird times we currently live in. 2020 has been quite a year, eh? Well, I'll, I'll keep doing these podcasts so you can still have some cool, interesting stuff to listen to, some interesting people with interesting stories. So I'll uh, I'll do everything to, to help you get through the shit. So anyway, today's episode is uh, the return of Dinosaur Dave of Dinosaur Rock Guitar. And if you haven't listened to the first one, which is the previous episode, episode number 30, be sure to listen to that one first, because that's really a, this is really a part one and part two when it comes to this. Subject of part one is mostly about uh, the dinosaur rock guitar players and what dinosaur rock guitar players represent in terms of style and attitude and music. And this episode goes more into the technical aspects of it, what kind of guitars they use, what kind of gear they use, what kind of amplifiers they use and effects and all that kind of stuff. So definitely this is part two. Listen to part one first if you're listening to this episode right now. Episode number 30 on the polarizer.com or on the YouTube page that you're listening to right now. So anyway, this episode is brought to you by Alert, A-L-L-E-R-T, Alert. Alert is an iPhone app for people who have food allergies who travel to countries where they don't speak the language. Alert can generate a food allergy flashcard in 44 different languages for the 14 most common allergies, which covers 90% of all cases. So if you're allergic to peanuts or dairy or tree nuts or gluten or shellfish or any of the 14 big ones, and you travel to a country where you don't speak the language, this app can generate a dynamic flashcard for you that will make life easier when you're abroad. Well, you're probably not traveling a whole lot right now with this COVID stuff, but this will be over too, hopefully sooner rather than later. But this too will pass, I'm, I'm convinced. We'll we'll figure something out to, uh, to deal with the shit and you'll be able to travel again. So be sure to check out Alert on the iOS App Store, A-L-E-R-T, or go to alertapp.com. That's A-L-L-E-R-T, alert with double L. And this episode is also brought to you by Amazon. If you go to thepolarize.com, you click on the Amazon button on the right side of the page if you're on a computer or on the bottom of the page if you're on mobile, you will land on Amazon like you always do. And if you make your order there, everything will be the same for you. The difference is Amazon will give me a little kickback for bringing you to the website through our through our website to my website, which will help me keep the show going because putting this podcast on is free, you know, recording gear, hosting costs, all that. Every little bit, every little bit helps. So next time you do your Amazon purchase, just go to polarize.com first, click on the little Amazon button and land on Amazon that way. It comes out of Amazon's end, so you don't notice any difference in terms of costs. And finally, this episode is also brought to you by Onnit. Onnit is a health and fitness company that makes all kinds of great products, and one of them is Alpha Brain. You know those times when you're so into what you're doing that you can't think about anything else? The days when you read half a dozen chapters, write a thousand words, or finish your work assignment without looking up once. How would you like to feel like that every day? Well, you can. Psychologists call that feeling being in the zone or flow state, the optimal level of consciousness where you can perform at your best. Alpha Brain helps you achieve flow state and supports other aspects of cognitive function for better memory, 
focus and mental processing. Alpha Brain can help you remember names and places, focus on complex tasks, think more clearly under stress, and react more quickly. With its trademarked ingredient blends, Alpha Brain builds an environment in which the brain can operate on all cylinders and protects its functioning for lasting mental clarity. Learn more on Anna.com and be sure to click the link on the website on polarize.com to get to Anna.com to get a nice discount on your first order or go to Anna.com and use the promo code POLARIZER. That's POLARIZER like the website P-O-L-A-R-I-Z-E-R. All right, we did it. We're ready. Here's part two of Dinosaur Rock Guitar, Dinosaur Dave. One awesome show to look forward to. Enjoy, ladies and gentlemen. All right, let's go. Yeah, hello everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Polarizer podcast. And this is the first uh, back-to-back episode I'm doing. Dinosaur Dave is back. The last time we uh, we talked about uh, the dinosaur rock guitarists, and this episode we're going to talk about their sound and how they are achieving their sound and what kind of gear you need, what kind of guitars you need, what kind of amplifiers you need, what kind of effects you need, and well, I'm sure there's uh, you can tell it in a way more coherent way than I can, and that's why. I'm happy to have you back, man. Welcome back. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me back. I think it's um, it's cool to be able to like give the other side of this now and, and talk about. You know, this is the kind of stuff that gear nerds banter about on the internet all the time. And, and they talk about how how their favorite players were getting the sounds that everybody, you know, flipped out over and they know and love. And you know how you know everybody sort of has when they play guitar guys that they admire and the sounds that they want to sort of go after say I want to, I want to try and base my sound after what this guy's doing or, or something like that and um, you know over the years you you start to figure out how you do that and um, it's changed a lot over time frankly and much of what we'll talk about today will be sort of the historic look back at how these things were done in the day and um, I, I have to set up some sort of a parameters because this subject is as wide as it is deep in some respects so what we're going to discuss here today is how to get authentic 70s heavy rock or 80s melodic metal tones and sounds and for the sake of this conversation you will hear me refer to those things as dino tones or dino sounds, or dino rock sounds, or those kinds of things, because that is the parlance of the website that I run, and um, it's just easier than saying 70s heavy rock, 80s melodic metal every time. Yeah. And um, And the website is dinosaurrockguitar.com. Correct. And we have been around for 20 years now. So um, what we're also going to discuss is these tones and sounds in the context of gigging and recording use cases, that is, in when having this authentic tone really matters. For example, we're not going to discuss how it applies to bedroom tone and you know practice practice tone and things, because for example, myself when it matters, I will do all of the things that I know will get the good tones. When I'm just practicing, I practice through these things and use whatever 
you know, practice amp is convenient for me. And so just earbuds or, or a small. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, you know, I use a lot of modern convenience gear to, to do the bulk of my practicing and working out things and stuff. But when I gig or when I record and the tone in that case matters to me that it, you know, should be authentic. Those are, that's what I'm talking about. We're going, we're talking about when the tone matters, when it's, when you're on stage, when you're trying to record something that's going to be heard for, you know, the rest of your life and the tone matters. The other thing I want to say is what we're going to talk about today doesn't necessarily apply to other musical styles, although there will be some crossover. Some things are true no matter what style you're talking about, but in the context of this conversation, I want to set the expectation that we're talking about, again, this 70s heavy rock and this 80s metal kind of tones and sounds. We're not talking about how to get, you know, clean jazz tones or, or you know, blues tones or, or any of those kinds of things. This is what we're talking about, you know, big roaring monster dino tones. And um, the, uh, I guess the last caveat is that these are my observations and opinions based on my decades of experience and, um, you know, obviously your mileage may vary. There's a lot of ways to get to the same thing these days. Uh, historically speaking, uh, there were only a few ways to get these sounds back in the time that these music genres were uh, happening. In the 70s and in the 80s, there were, there were not a zillion ways to get these sounds like there are now. So okay. that said, um, I'm going to dig in with amps first. And amps should come first. And the reason for that is amps create the largest percentage of your tone. Why is that? Because it's really a matter of if you own five different guitars of all different types, but you only own one amp, that amp cover colors every effect, uh, every sound that you're getting out of all five guitars. So you may have vastly different sounding guitars, but if you're going through one amp, they're all going to sound like that amp right. to a degree. So... I would say I've always thought that the amp was probably at least 55% of your tone. And, um, and there's another old axiom that still is true to this day, although the numbers kind of change, you know, but the old axiom went a $200 guitar sounds better through a $1,000 amp than a $1,000 guitar sounds through a $200 amp. And, you know, whether you're talking about a $500 guitar and a $3,000 amp, it's the same thing. Um, the amp really is the foundational basis of everything. And we're not even going to get a chance to really go into like cabs and speakers today, but just for the sake of, of this discussion, the amp really is the, the largest percentage of any guitar player's tone. Okay. And um, Marshall is the, is the big big one that you see on uh, every stage in the background of the big mm -hmm. rock guys. Right. But, but there's well, more than one Marshall. There's more than one Marshall and there's more than one of those kinds of sounds. And we're going to get into that in the tube discussion. Okay. Um, but yes, Marshall has been by far the most successful and visible amplifier for these sounds. Um, and it's a company that has had 
success despite itself in a lot of cases. They've made a lot of boneheaded decisions along the way. Uh, the company has changed hands a few times, and that's very common. It was very common in the 70s with guitars and gear that the company, you know, Gibson would get bought, Fender would get bought. Uh, these things changed the, the quality of the gear. As you might imagine, a new leadership comes in, and they're caring more about making money than they are caring about quality control and things like that. So, yeah, it's, it's a general thing, and we, we don't have really the bandwidth here to get into every nuance of every change. You could do a whole show on just Marshall's changes over the years, but right. um, that's a level of gear nerd that, I, you know, I think... That's next could, level. <laughs> yeah, that's a next level, yeah. But, but I, know, anyway. I, I know that, um, like, some people from Marshall started a new company called Blackstar, and I know people from Fender went out to, st to start a new guitar brand, too. I forget. The, they, they look like Fender Stratocaster. Oh, GNL. GNL. When Leo Fender sold Fender, he started GNL and, you know, before he died, obviously. Uh, but he ran that company for a few years before he died. And GNL makes Fender-ish kind of guitars. A lot of people think they, in some ways, had better quality than the Fenders. They never had the popularity, and they certainly never had, you know, you can get a very nice guitar from them, but they never had, like, the resale value or anything like that. So, right. Yeah, so those things do happen. I mean, Gibson's gone through tons of changes over the years, tons of different ownership uh, companies doing terrible things in general to their quality control. But um, let's, uh, let's try and stay on the app track here for a second. And the one thing I always tell beginners, and usually they don't listen because everybody is, is like more interested in getting the cool guitar, but if you have a basic level guitar that's, that's not giving you trouble and you, you like the guitar you're playing with, it's, it's better to invest in a good amp before you upgrade to an expensive guitar. Okay. In most situations, what you need from an amp in this style of music is one clean tone, one good crunch tone, and one lead tone. And it doesn't mean that your amp has to have three channels, but it means you need to be able to get those kinds of sounds out of an amp, whether you're meaning clean means backing off your volume till it cleans up. And if you're you know, overdriving it into a lead tone with a pedal or something like that, you can do that. And can you what, uh, can you elaborate on what, what a clean crunch and a lead tone is for those yeah, who don't a, know? Yeah, a clean tone is, is a tone that is not distorted. Um, what's know, a good example of that? What's a good example of that? Um, something like, you know, like a Buddy Holly tone or something like that. Uh, you know, or the Beach Boys or something. Yeah, tones that before before you had distorted tones. Right. Um, you know, Hendrix had a lot of really interesting clean tones on a lot, you know, things like Little Wing and Castles Made of Sand and stuff like that. Those were, you know, some clean tones. Um, you know, most heavy rock players will just back off their volume until the amp cleans up a little bit, and then they'll roll the volume back up to get, you know, the crunch tone. When I say crunch tone, that's your general rhythm tone, what you hear, you know, 
you know, like in an ACDC context, the, you know, the main guitar tone. So if you and roll back your volume, you turn the volume on the guitar itself back. So the You can do that, or you can do it with a volume pedal, yeah. Okay. Most people just do it with a volume knob, but if you're, you know, if you're doing it a lot and you're using volume effects, uh, it may be better to do it with a pedal. But uh, a volume pedal is kind of like a wah pedal. It, you know, you can rock it back and forth, and if you, you press down on it, you have full volume, and you back it off, you have less volume. Okay. Um, but most people do that with the volume knob on the guitar, and it's still a absolutely uh, fine way to, to clean up your tone. So then you go into this, this crunchy, you know, heavy rhythm tone, which is your main rhythm tone. And then if you want to take a solo after that, a lot of people will boost the tone a little bit further, possibly boost some of the mid-range. If you're stepping on a pedal like a Tube Screamer or something like that, it has a mid-range bump and it, it gives you this nice uh, overdriven tone that uh, has enough sustain in it that all of your lead work will feel fluid and you won't feel like your notes are dying out while you're playing. Okay, so the tone feeds back into the guitar and you can make it sing, you know? Yeah, it just gives you, you know, it, it takes what your amp is doing and it gives it sort of a kick in the butt. And right. it, it takes it a little further without you having to reach over to the amp and turning it up or turning up the gain on it. You just step on a pedal that boosts your your existing signal and you get a little bit more out of it. Cool. Now, you know, we're not even going to get into a talking about like a lot of effects today. Again, uh, we're just talking about the basics here of getting the the basic sounds. Lots of guys using lots of effects. That's a different that again, that would be a whole other episode, really. <laughs> um, but uh, when you're looking for an amp to do this kind of music, uh, a lot of beginners fall into the trap of, of trying to find some amp that's or they get sold by a salesman, an amp that has a, a bunch of different sounds and are very versatile, and you can get this sound and that sound and the other sound out of the amp. A lot of these are modeled amps that are, you know, not tube amps or, you know, they're hybrids or something like that. And I would say stay away from those things if, like I said, when the tone matters. If you're only going to practice in your bedroom, that's okay. But in this style of music, you don't need that much versatility. Uh, it's it's sort of overrated in most heavy rock and metal sort of scenarios. Okay. You don't need many mediocre sounds. You need one or two really good sounds. Right. And out of your amp. And what is the difference between a, a transistor, a hybrid, and a tube amp? And what is a modeling amp exactly for, for those right. who don't so know? So in the old days, prior to, I'd say... I don't know when the transistor amps started, but certainly most of the amps throughout the 70s were tube amps, and nothing sounds like a tube amp. Uh, we To this day, we have still not replicated uh, tube tone with, with any kind of uh, modern technology in a way. We're getting very close, but it's still, if you hear one next to the other, the tube amp has a bunch of harmonic characteristics that are really derived from the tubes themselves and it's very hard to make that sound uh, authentic in an amp that's just trying to simulate it okay we're talking about vacuum tubes the next part of this talk is going to get into specifics on that but uh, certainly by the early 80s there were a lot of companies making non-tube amps at the time 
you got to understand vacuum tubes throughout the 50s, throughout the 60s, throughout the world, vacuum tubes were uh, in everything. They were in TVs, they were in radios, they were all over the place. And then, you know, in the 60s, you got transistor radios and they became portable and people were carrying transistor radios around and all of that stuff. And uh, vacuum tubes in America and in Europe started to become less and less common. They still had them around, but um, we're in the middle of the Cold War here, too, in the mid-70s. And as the companies that created vacuum tubes in the West started to go out of business because they were being put out of business by transistors, um, guitarists who wanted these things still in their amps started looking to Russia and China who were still making vacuum tubes. And in the early 80s, there was a scare thinking, okay, you know, we're in the middle of this Cold War and China, the Chinese and the Russians are our enemies. We may not be able to get these tubes anymore for our amplifiers. We better start figuring out how to make good sounding guitar amplifiers with transistors. Oh, wow. And the early, the early attempts were not very promising, frankly. I had no idea that was the, the history behind uh, transistor amplifiers, actually. Yeah, I mean, the transistor pretty much... The only thing we use tubes for in the West now is guitar amplifiers. Nothing else has tubes in them. Or really expensive hi-fi amplifiers, right? Yeah, right, right. Audiophile quality stuff may still do that. But, I mean, but by and large, you have to say 99% of it's for guitar amplifiers. Yeah. And um, Because they get hot and they're, they use a well, ton of energy. Actually, and, well, yeah. it's... Yeah, well... Aside from the fact that they're a lot more expensive than transistors, they they weigh more, so it affects portability of any electronic device. You know, they cost more, uh, so you could understand why you wouldn't want them in your flat screen TV. You know, and and things like that. So, you know, they're not they're you know in back in the day computers that we you know we're, we have we're, we're talking to each other. 3,000 miles apart here on a computer. In the old days, when my father was working at uh, NASA, the computers had tubes. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they had those rooms, they, you know, with all these, these vacuum tubes in them glowing hot, and they had to keep the rooms cool and all that stuff. It, it was really, you know, a major breakthrough of the transistor, but it's the one place it didn't translate is to guitar tone. It just never, it just never sounded anywhere near as good as a warm, glowing tube in in music. Right. So and, and I know it's a, it's a sidebar, but your dad worked at NASA. That's cool. Yeah, he worked at NASA during the Mercury years, and uh, you know, they, you know, we talk about the fact that the Apollo Eleven went to the moon on sixty four k of memory. Right. All right. And yeah. the computer that had only 64K, I'm not talking about 64 meg, 64K. Yeah. All right. That's like less than one old floppy disk. Yeah. Floppy disk was like 1.4 megabytes. Meg. Right. Yeah. 64K. Think about how small amount of that memory that is. And that took up the whole width of the Saturn V rocket. Wow. To have that computer be that large. 
That's crazy. That. Yeah, it is. So transistors. And it still worked. <laughs> yeah, it did. And transistors, you know, changed everything in, in, in modern electronics. But tube amps are not modern electronics. They're really from a bygone era. And they are an anomaly where the vacuum tube still plays a vital role in the sound of what's coming out of that amp. Right. So in general, we, you know, we were talking about Marshall and we'll talk about a couple of brands, but in general, design concepts are more important than specific brands and models. And when we're talking about amps, that means matching the amps power tube type gets you closer than anything else to what you may want to achieve. And to do that and to understand that involves understanding a little bit about the tube basics. And we started to touch on this already. But we're talking about power tubes here. The, the, an amplifier has a preamp area inside of it and a power amp area inside of it. There are preamp tubes and there are power amp tubes. There's also a transformer and a bunch of other things. But the power amp tubes are the things that are responsible for a lot of the characteristic of the tone, certainly in the vintage, you know, in the vintage amps. Um, things are a little different now. A lot of sound now comes from the preamp side. Uh, but back in the day, um, the sound of the amp was directly related to, and still is, uh, the kind of power amp tube that was in an amp. And the the big daddy for dyno music and 70s hard rock and 80s melodic metal was the EL34 tube, and they were made in Britain. Um, it's also, uh, it's amps with those tubes in them tend to have what we sometimes refer to as a British sound. Okay. So Marshall amps, Orange amps, Laney amps, High watt amps, Sound City amps, they all used EL34s. And that was really, for the long, longest time, the sound of dino rock. Okay. Um, so the characteristics of that tube compared to some of the others that are you know, also important were that um, EL34 tubes run hot, hotter and distort earlier as you increase the volume of the amp. Okay. So what that means is as you turn up the amp's volume, um, let's say you're starting on zero, on a Marshall, typically you will start to hear the amp start to distort around four, five, six, somewhere in that area on your way to 10, right? Right. Because that tube will will heat up and start distorting at that at that level. There are other tubes that won't distort until you get a, all the way up in your volume. But what they wanted was to get this distortion. The distortion became very uh, desirable in in the music of the day that was being created. So, EL thirty fours to give you some context are the sound of Hendrix, the sound of Cream, the sound of the Who the sound of Zeppelin, the sound of Sabbath, ACDC, Van Halen, and a lot of 80s metal. Okay. Okay? So Hendrix and Cream used Marshalls. The Who were very big into high watts and sound cities before that. And, and Pete also 
Pete Townsend was also responsible for the Marshall stack before he, he had a falling out with Marshall and, and started using high watt amps. Okay. Uh, Black Sabbath is, is uh, largely associated with Laney amps. Um, ACDC, straight up Marshalls, Van Halen in his early days in the first album in that era, pure Marshall, and a lot of the 80s metal, as I said. Most of that stuff is Marshall as well, but it's all EL34 based amps. Okay, but yet the sound between these bands are quite different because um, if you compare the sound of Van Halen to, by the way, Rest in Peace, what a shame. And Absolutely. I, I didn't saw that comment, man. I was bummed for the whole week when that news oh, came out. Oh, we all were. We all were, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Poor guy didn't didn't uh, didn't get that old. But he lived very hard and partied very hard, so I guess that's... Uh, well, not only that, it's it's like the man dies of throat cancer. And if you if you go back and you're... You, all I was noticing, like, when everybody's posting their tributes and posting pictures of him, it's almost impossible to see a picture of Eddie without a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, you, know, you know, he dies of throat cancer, and he always had this, this nonsensical story that, oh, my cancer came from me holding a metal pick in my mouth for a few years. No, it wasn't the cigarettes or anything, obviously. Right. <laughs> it's so weird that, that a guy like uh, Lemmy, how old did he get? He got pretty old, right? Um, older than Eddie, I think. But he, he was like drinking like more than a bottle of whiskey a day f since his 20s or something. And he... I don't know if that was true at the end. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was true at the end. Um, but, you know, certainly, uh, you know, a hard life with a lot of, a lot of miles on those tires. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but uh, as you, you know, you, yeah. you're right. Those, those sounds, all those sounds I mentioned were fairly different. Now, whether you're talking Marshall, Orange, Laney, High Watt, Sound City, or any of the mo more modern amps that use that still use EL34 tubes, they all will voice the amp a little different than you know their competitors. So a Marshall sounds different from an Orange, and a, and a Laney sounds different from a Marshall and an Orange, and a High Watt is different than those. They're they're using the same components, but they're making design choices that make the amp sound slightly differently. That's in the preamp then? No, that's in the power. Well, yes. Actually, I'm sorry. You're right. That would be, that part would be in the preamp. Okay. The voicing. Yes. Okay. All right. So those are the EL, uh, 34. 34s. And what yeah. else is there? Uh, like what, what are other, uh, popular power amp tubes or is that just the, the one? Nope. There's more. Um, we're going to only cover the, like I said, we're only going to cover the ones that are applicable to this style, but, um, let me, let me say that prior to 1981 and Marshall introducing the JCM 800, the distortion in the EL 34 amps came from the power amp side, the, the tubes getting hot. This is sometimes called power amp saturation. Basically, you're running the amps at, at full volume or close to full volume so that these, these EL34 power tubes got hot and created the distortion. Right. Now, that said, you can say, well, wait a minute. What I hear from Hendrix and Cream doesn't sound like what I hear from ACDC or what I hear from, you know, except, you know, those guys were using those amps too. How come they sounded, you know, more metal? 
And the reason for that is in those days, extra distortion came from fuzz pedals and early distortion pedals. Okay. So if you're, you're, if you're running an old Marshall, a, a Plexi or a Super Lead, and you turn it all the way up, you're getting a, a wonderful tone, but it isn't anything like you think of modern gain. It's still, you know, think of more like, it, it's like, if you want to think of what one of those amps sounds like run full out, think of like the albums of ACDC from the late 70s and early 80s. That's not the same levels of distortion that we got from from metal bands later. Right. And what it's, you don't really hear on those in, on those recordings necessarily is that it's so loud that it will just almost tear the house down, right? Right, right. So the holy grail for amps was always getting this heavily distorted tone at a reasonable volume. So uh, that, you know, that was part of the, the evolution of what was going on here in the gear. But Hendrix would use, for example, a fuzz face to, to get some extra distortion. Jimmy Page used the Sola Sound Tone Bender. Uh, Tony Iommi and Brian May used something called a Dallas Range Master Treble Booster. Randy Rhodes and Accept used, used an MXR Distortion Plus. All of these things they put in as a pedal in front of the amplifier to make it distort even further. Okay. But the basic tone still remained an EL34 British tone. Okay. Okay. Preamp gain came in later with the JCM800 and Mesa, Mesa Boogies. Um, at that point, what you have is an attempt by the amplifier companies to try and get these tones at a more reasonable volume. So you would have what was essentially a gain knob in addition to the volume knob, or sometimes they called it a master volume knob. And what, what that meant was you could turn up the amp's power amp section so it would get hot and distort and then you would turn the actual volume of the amp back down to a more reasonable volume and you what would happen is you were you were adding preamp gain and taking some of the uh the power stage gain out of the equation yeah so you could still get the distorted tone without uh, bringing the house down right and it was a trade-off it, it it's not the same thing there's something that happens when you run an amp at full volume um, and by the way, we should also state that back in the day, in the 70s, especially if you ran Marshall amps at full volume for the whole concert, if you didn't have like a fan blowing on the back of the amp, they would get so hot, they would, they would start smoking and blow up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, th this was a very common thing. So, you, you know, guys would, would mod the amps to put a fan on the inside of the amp, or they'd just take a desk fan and they'd stick it behind the amp and blow it on the back of the tubes so that they kept it from blowing up. Wow. But, I mean, you were literally running these things to the point of destruction to get this sound. <laughs> and one of the things that Eddie Van Halen did, uh, and people still try to do this, there's, there's really no real decent reason to do this anymore, but back in 1977 when he was you know, getting ready to record his album and all that. He used this, this voltage uh, variac device that would change the voltage so that he could change the voltage coming out of, you know, the amp and get that tone cranking at somewhat lower volume. It was an early attempt at attenuation. And, you know, 
a lot of the the amps that exist from those days, I had one or two in the back in the day. They, you know, you had guys who would do mods on your amplifier and and put in an attenuator that would let you turn the 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 actual volume down but keep the the amp running hot. Okay. But those were modifications. They weren't coming out of the factory that way. And um, you can you also made, go uh, ahead. Sorry. Well, you you can also put um, like uh, I forget what it's called. It's it's. Uh, well, you can put something between the amplifier and the speaker that sort the of... The hot plate. The hot plate, that's it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they didn't have those back then. Those don't come around that early. The Marshall Power Break and the, and the THD hot plate and things like that, they came later. That You know, again, there's something that happens when you run that amp full out. Aside from the power tubes getting very hot, the transformer gets involved, and that adds some some complexity and dynamics to the sound. And if you and what happens is when you start getting into amps that have multiple gain stages, they're they're shifting a lot of that distortion to the preamp tube, hmm. so that the uh, the power tubes don't run as hot. And it's a it's a to these days it's a pretty good solution, uh, but. It, it really, you could always contend that something is lost if you're not running that thing full out. Right. And uh, again, it, it's it's really a question of when it really matters. Does it really matter? If you're getting the distortion and you're happy with it, why blow up your amp? But um, this is, you know, again, this is somewhat of a history lesson through where you know where we've come from. We've we've got many ways to do this now. I mean. The other part of this is back in those days, if you wanted this sound, that was the only way you got it, okay? If you were to buy any other kind of amp, like a, like a PV practice amp or something like that that were common in those days, some sort of small wattage, like 25-watt amp or something like that, they didn't get the sound. They had a different sound, but it, it was not that EL34 sound that was not the authentic sound. You couldn't get it out of a practice amp. Hmm. It just it was not available. You had to buy an amp that had this kind of tube in it, and that meant getting a 50-watt amp or a 100-watt amp. And, and turn dealing, it all the and, way up. <laughs> yeah, and dealing with that volume problem some way. And like I said, people took different approaches to dealing with that. And uh, because if you didn't do that, you just weren't going to get that sound. And in, like I said, 1981... Marshall comes out with the first JCM 800, which has a second gain stage, which lets you shift some of that power amp distortion to the preamp. So you're, you're blending now preamp and power amp distortion, and you can get, you know, a distorted sound. You could argue not exactly the same one, a distorted sound at a more reasonable volume. Okay. The first run of those things, I believe it was, was interesting because I remember very vividly if you turn the JC, the early JCM 800s all the way up, you couldn't get what you were getting on the on the earlier Marshalls. It, it it still had preamp gain in the circuit, so you couldn't get that 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 highly overdriven sound. Uh, you got a different kind of sound. It was it it became more about preamp gain, and the other aspect was that. Um, 
see here. So yeah, you got that, Ma- that, that Mesa started um, developing so, apps, and they also. So you got like uh, you you don't just have one volume button. You have you have another volume button on the preamp, right? That's the difference. Yeah, right, right. So you could you know keep your volume all the way low, right? If you imagine on your Marshall or whatever amp you're talking about, if you keep your volume on one, your main volume on one, and you turn your gain all the way up, right. you're, hearing the, you're hearing the preamp to, to distort. And it has a very different sound. It has a buzzy sound. It's not this big, warm, clean, thumping sound. Okay. Now, if you, if you do the opposite, if you turn the volume all the way up and the, and the, uh, and the gain, I guess, you turn it up, enough you're getting more to get that power amps saturation you need to turn the regular volume up right so at the same time marshall was coming out with this actually before marshall was coming out with this i think mesa boogie started coming out with an amp that was um also had a a, a different gain stage from uh the power amp and the difference with Mesa Boogie was they were using a different tube. They were using a tube called the 6L6. Okay. And that is a, uh, a classic. The, the 6L6 is associated with classic Mesa tones. They also now use EL34s in some rectifiers and some of those amplifiers. Mesa has used... Um, what's, a, what's a good example of like a typical uh, sound that comes out of that tube? Um, one of the earliest Mesa Boogie users was Carlos Santana. If you can think of what you know, what his lead tone sounds like. Um, got the guys in Steely Dan were using those. Um, Dream Theater and Metallica used those for metal sounds. It's a slightly different sound. The 6L6 tube is also an American-built tube, and you know it's sometimes referred to as the American sound as opposed to the EL34, which is the British sound. Mm. The 6L6 is basically a more versatile tube than the EL34. It produces less obvious saturation when pushed. Um, it's better for cleans. You know, it, it, it shines in clean, uh, in clean applications. So if you're not doing dyno style music, you can, you know, use those tubes and get a lot more versatility. Do Fender applications use those, or Fender amplifiers? Yeah, use Fenders those? have used Fenders have used those too. Okay. And I should also, um, I should also stipulate that on occasion Marshall has has strayed from EL34s. It's never usually been a good idea for them, but uh, you know, for the most part, they are always been an, an EL34 sound. They've 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 played around with other tubes when it was harder to get EL34s and stuff like that. But uh, those those particular models were less successful and less characteristic i think what what's a good example of a marshall model that had those um when there was a there was a stage in the mid 70s when um they had some difficulty getting uh EL34s for whatever reason for the American market and the Marshalls that were coming over, it might've been like a, 
they sell, they were making them fine for, for in Europe, but when they were sending the ones to America for a brief period, they had a tube in them called the 6550, which was a bigger tube that didn't distort anywhere near as, as early as the EL34 did. So you crank that thing up and it wouldn't get distorted. Mm. It would stay cleaner. And people were like, what the hell is this? It's not what you want for the dyno tone. No, no. So, I mean, the people who, you know, who bought those amps re realized quickly if they were after the, the sound they thought they were getting, they weren't getting it. But uh, that, you know, things like that happened for a while. Um, I don't think, you know, the original Marshall that really put the, the, the name on the map that, that, was the blues breaker combo that Clapton played when he was in John Mayall. I think that that thing didn't have EL 34s in it. That was a 1965 combo, uh, that, um, I think it had KT 88s or 66s in it or something like that. It didn't have EL 34s, but it, it still sounded great. But, um, you know, for the most part, again, it's an EL 34 sound. And the reason like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, continue to talk about this in terms of the tube type instead of the brand is because if you if you buy another amp that isn't a Marshall and it's got EL34s in it you're probably going to be able to get this tone. Right. You know, whether you sense. you know whether you pick up an old Laney or whether you pick up a Bogner or 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 a Friedman or something like that that's a you know a boutique copy of a Marshall or or something like that um an orange amp you're going to get EL34s you're going to get that tone. Right. Uh, and then it's just a matter of how much bass and treble you want, you know, and, and, and the voicing and all of that. But you will get those kinds of tones. Didn't uh, Led Zeppelin also use Orange instead of Marshall? He used them. Uh, Page used them in addition to Marshall, to my understanding. Uh, he was blending the two sounds, and that was a really good idea because of the way those two amps are voiced. This is something I do to this day because I, my favorite sounds are Marshall sounds and orange sounds. And um, a Marshall has a lot of top end bite and they're, they're very bright, not obnoxiously bright, but they're very bright and toppy and oranges are very smooth and mid rangey. Okay. And when you blend the two of them, you get the best of both worlds. You get this thick mid range with this top end bite. So you're getting, you know, something that's a little more than both of those amps by themselves. Wow. Jimmy and, Page uh, again doing some uh, magical innovation there. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've, for the last bunch of years, when I play live, I, I try to use some sort of variation on, on that sort of theme. And I tend to, uh, when I run them in stereo, it sounds great because you're, you're really getting, you know, all of that Marshall bite with all of that, uh, orange sound beef wow. and it just it it's just a killer combination that is really hard to beat so you just run two amps at the same time when you play a show yeah and if you can run them in stereo it's even better because that adds another dimension to things that um it's really interesting there's something sonically weird that goes on that like even if you know and you know one of the things we we've, we've gotten to in recent years 
as I said, the holy grail for amps was always getting that heavily distorted power amp saturation tone at a reasonable volume. Well, what you've seen since 2008 was the advent of these low wattage amplifiers that run at like 7 watts or 15 watts instead of 50 or 100. And if you take a 7 watt amp and you crank it up to 10, you're getting power amp saturation through that amp, but you're not anywhere near 100 watts of volume, even though it's still damn loud. But you can also run it through, you know, less speaker cabinets. If you run it through one 12-inch one speaker instead of four 12-inch speakers, you're getting one quarter of the output, right? right. So you're getting, that, you're getting that tone that is coming from running those tubes really hot, but you're getting it really scaled down. So those power tubes in, in those things, is it like a smaller version of the EL34s then, or...? Well, a lot of them do that, but if you if you if you look around, you can find some of those amps that actually have EL34s in them. Usually, instead of having four EL34s, like a 100 watt amp has four of them, a 50 uh. watt a 50 watt amp has two of them. And I have, for example, two small amps that run at like 10 watts, and it has one EL34 in it. Okay. And I run it through one one twelve instead of four twelves. And, you know, you get that tone at a really scaled down volume. And then if you do the same thing and you run something that sounds like an orange amplifier on the other side at 7 watts through 112 and you hook them up in stereo, you're running two speakers now, two right. amps and two speakers. But because you run them in stereo, there's something that happens with the dynamics, especially if you put like a subtle chorus on, on one of the speakers. It sounds bigger, if not louder. It does sound bigger than, for example, a full mono Marshall stack in mono. Right. Well, and, and just to clarify, a 12 is a 12-inch speaker? Yep, And those really 12-inch speaker. And those really big cabinets that you, uh, like the typical Marshall cabinets, that, that like the stereotypical big Rockstar amplifiers, that's a cabinet that right. has four times a 12-inch speaker in there. And right. then they stack two of those on top of each other. And what, what does a chorus do exactly? It's an effect. It adds an extra dimension. It's a it's a uh, it's an effect that um, subtly shifts uh, the sound. In it. it's it's hard to describe um, a chorus effect, and you'd use it very subtly in in a stereo rig anyway. It, and what it does is it, it gives it an extra dimension than just having this dry sound with no uh no reverb or anything on it um you could run reverb but i've had this experience in uh in in my life where the guys who were on stage before me the the act that was going on stage before me when i was like in a band that was coming on after you'd have like two or three bands playing in one night they'd go up they'd go up on stage they got the guitarist would have a marshall stack with a hundred watt marshall and eight 12-inch speakers, two cabinets, Whoa. a full and he'd run it bloody loud. That's, uh, right. that's a lot of uh, power. <laughs> yeah, especially in a small club. And, you know, what <clears throat> happened was they'd break down after their set. They'd come out. I'd go on stage with this little rig with two little amplifiers and two 112-speaker cabinets run in stereo. And as long as you're miking the cabinets through the PA of the club... You know, you're, you're going to have plenty of volume. Right. And 
that rig of mine sounded bigger and louder than the 100-watt Marshall stack. And when my set was over, the guitarist from the previous set was coming up to me, how the hell are you getting that sound? How are you getting that sound? He's like, I'm running 812s. How, are you, how come you sound bigger than I do? Part of that is stereo. Right. Uh, but part part of that is also, you know, knowing these sort of these principles of how to get, you know, the authentic tone. And if you're getting it in a smaller package, you can, you know, you can take advantage of running a small amp full out. And and a good example of chorus is, I think, the intro of uh, Come As You Are from Nirvana, right? That's... Uh... That dun, 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 chorus dun, or is that flange? Yeah, is that chorus or is it flange? I think um, it's chorus. I you think may, you may be right. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not up to you know. It, 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 not a big Nirvana fan, so it, I mean, I know the song you're talking about, but I, I I haven't heard it enough to know whether it's. I believe it's, it's chorus. You're yeah. probably right. Um, the guy who put chorus on the map in heavy rock and metal is is Alex Fifeson. So a lot of the early Rush stuff um, has chorus on it. Uh, he always used a lot of effects. Um, you know, the old boss chorus stuff. Um, Farewell to Kings has a lot of that on it. That album has a lot of chorus on it. Um, and of course, you know, there's a lot of bands like See. the police and you too that you have so many effects on all the time and a lot of that is chorus as well that's chorus right sounds like it yeah okay well also if you like the first couple of chords of hemispheres do you want to put that on hemispheres from Rush it's also yeah. an album I see Right, but it's the first, uh, the first few chords of the first song. Let's see. Here we go. Singus X One Book Two Hemispheres. Yeah. See, that's a trippy cover. The naked lady standing in a desert somewhere. Guy. Is that a guy? Yeah. Oh, it's been, hmm, it's playing, but I don't hear anything. That is... Oh, hold on. Uh, I'm pulling the wrong volume knob. That. Right. It's a trippy guitar sound. Yeah. So there's, there's chorus on that. That's a lot of chorus. Um, I, can, I can play too long, otherwise, you know, the, yeah, no, the, they catch it with copyright and all that nonsense. Right. And, but anyway, yeah. um, that's just like we, we're sort of like veering off the, off the path. But, um, yeah, if you, run, if you run small amps, you can get this power amp distortion at reasonable volumes these days. And that's one way that we've learned over the last 40 years that we can, we can still achieve those, those kinds of awesome tones there's there's something i mean if you haven't played through a rig that's doing this you're missing out because it, it there's really something about it changes the feel of how everything responds um 
to it's completely different than playing through your practice rig all gained out. Right. Um, and and it's true of stereo as well. And I don't want to talk too much about stereo, but the feel of how the notes come out coming off your guitar are are coming out and blooming through the amp and through this this uh, glorious power amp saturation, which involves the transformer, and you're getting all of this harmonic overtone that um, it really gives you a, 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 a feel like you can achieve more on the instrument. Hmm. It's like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it's like going from, you know, eight crayons to 64 crayons. <laughs> right. You know, it, it's really, it, it's, it's a different um, sort of experience. But anyway, um, Mesa came along and they they took a different tube and they were trying to make a much more versatile amp and they succeeded. And they have, over the years, been much more experimental than Marshall. They have put out a lot of different kinds of models for different things. They've become a big name in the, in the heavy metal, high gain heavy metal world with their rectifier models and things like that. Yeah, what um, what's so special about the rectifier? Because you also have the duo rectifier, and and there's there's some kind of uh, there's there for me there was always some kind of uh, magic around that, like that that's a rectifier and that's a double rectifier. You know, <laughs> I think it's multiple gain stages at this point is what we're talking about. Uh, multiple channels and multiple gain stages. The early the early EL thirty four amps that we're talking about were single channel amps. They didn't have like you know. A clean channel and a dirty channel. You had one channel, and a volume and, and a volume knob. Right, and and your and your basic tone controls. Okay, then you had a set. You know, you had the first you know gain stages where you had control over the preamp gain as well as the power amp gain, and now you start to have these amps come along where you have okay, now you have a clean channel, a dedicated clean channel. You can you have a foot switch. That can go from clean to crunch to lead, all in the same box. Okay, without any effects. Now, you're talking about having the ability to set up a clean tone, and then set up a rhythm tone, and then set up a lead tone, and um, the the way things progressed with music, Mesa just did a very good job of positioning themselves with versatility and also being very good in the high gain market. Um, you know, Dream Theater and Metallica are, you know, bands that have the classic Mesa tone in, in metal, basically. Um, like Metallica's but, early tone is like very, um, like they, there's almost no mid range in there. It's just bass and treble and, Right, that was more of them making choices with how they were setting their tone knobs. They were rolling the mids out. Uh, that was that became a very big thing. It's it's something I've never liked. I love mid range, but you know when you when you're talking about these bands that are going dun 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 dun, dun, dun and a lot of chugging rhythms and things like that, you know th it makes sense that you're going to want some some cut in the mids there in respect to, you know, uh, especially with, uh, you know, certain styles of music. Right. 
but uh, you know the, the the more classic stuff, you know the pre uh, pre thrash metal, the melodic metal, and the heavy rap. There's plenty. You know, it was, it's characterized by mid range in a lot of respects. Um, as are lead tones. Most lead tones, if they don't have mid range in them, they sound thin and awful. You know. Right. So it, it you know mid range is where all the body is. So when you when you're scooping your mids out of your out of your tone, you're getting lows and highs, and not much in the middle. What well, was, for example, uh, what would Jimi Hendrix's sound settings be, for example? Just everything turned ten, or? Well, it, he I think was a guy. If you're talking about in the studio specifically, you know, people talk about what you know. What was Jimmy Jimi Hendrix's tone? Well, Jimi Hendrix had about twelve tones, and about half of them were clean tones. Right. So he, he was he was really manipulating his sound a lot, um, and especially in the studio live, he didn't tend to do quite as much of that live in those days. Now you're talking about really you're talking about the mid '60s into the late '60s at best. Both them and Cream were running those amps full out on stage because the PAs of the day didn't, you know, you weren't miking your amp through the PA. Right. The PA was only for vocals. So, you know, if you're playing Albert Hall or some big venue like that and you've got two Marshall stacks on stage, you want the guys in the back to hear you, you're turning those things up. And that had, you know, this, this marvelous effect on tone because of all the reasons we've been talking about. But it wasn't, you know, it was out of necessity in some respects. Right. Yeah, and also for clarification, the PA is like the speakers of the venue. And what they do, right. they, they put microphones in front of amplifiers and then they that gets picked up and gets, um, you know, sent out through those huge venue speakers as well. Right. If you go to a concert these days or any days past the 60s, you know, everything is going through the PA. They put a microphone on, you know, the singer. They put a microphone on the bass rig. They put a microphone on every drum. They put a microphone on the guitar speaker. Not all the speakers, but on one or two of the speakers. And everything that is happening on stage also gets sent through the PA. But in the days of The Who and Cream and uh, Hendrix, the you know, The Beatles played Shea Stadium, which is, you know, a 67,000-seat stadium or something like that with 50-watt amplifiers and 100 watts of PA. And <laughs> that's, why, that's why no one could hear them, that because everybody was screaming. But it's like it was, it was inadequate to actually play a venue that size with the gear that was around in those days. Right. So... Uh, I remember reading that the Beatles were the reason why PA systems got bigger and they started miking up amps. And right. And by the time you get to the early 70s with, with the Stones and Zeppelin, the PAs were now big. And, you know, you know, they were able to... The Beatles never were able to play in a situation like that. They never played, you know, they never played in big venues where they were heard. And that was one of the things they, you know, they complained about in, in interviews later, you know. We'd go up on stage and play Popeye the Sailor Man and no one would know because everyone was screaming. And, you know, their gear, frankly, was not adequate to, mm. to, to fill the, you know, to fill the, 
the building with sound. So anyway, you have the you know you have the EL thirty four which we've talked about. You have the six L six which is the classic Mesa sound. It's also in a lot of Fenders. Uh, we're not talking about Fender amps very much because they're not very applicable in heavy rock or in um, melodic metal. Uh, I'm not talking about like Fender's EVH brand, you know Eddie Van Halen heads that Fender makes for them. That, that that's a recent phenomenon. Fender and it traditionally was not an amp that was used for this genre. Right, and those those five one five O amps that Van Halen had, they were they were made by different companies, I think. For right, years, the first right? ones I think the first ones were made by PV. And then I think the the follow ups were made by Fender. Okay. And then they just changed the name to EVH or something like that. So the um the last tube I want to talk about is the EL84, which is the little brother of the EL34. The EL34 EL is a smaller tube, but it also distorts very quickly. Um, it's even, um, it distorts even earlier when you turn up your volume. So you can imagine a smaller tube, you know, if an EL34 is maybe this tall, an EL84 is maybe that tall. And because of the size, if you're pumping the same amount of a signal into the tube, it, a smaller tube is going to distort quicker. So it's about 30% smaller. I would say something like, the, like that. Like the size of a, like a, like a EL 34 is about the size of a, like the height of a cigarette lighter. Uh, or a little maybe. bigger. Yeah. yeah. You know, something like that. Yeah. Okay. You know, uh, and, um, the EL 84 uh, is the sound of Vox amplifiers and pretty much the sound of the British invasion. Okay. Okay, the sound of the 60s British invasion. Uh, the sound you get from the Beatles, the 60s era Stones, the Yardbirds, and also Brian May, because Brian May always used Vox AC30 amplifiers. Yeah, that's another legendary amplifier, right? Actually, it is a legendary amplifier. It's just the only one who uses it really in a post-martial era still is Brian May. But when you had, for example, before Marshalls, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, all these guys, Clapton, they were all using Vox amplifiers, um, partially because they're a British amplifier and that was what was available to them in their country in the 60s. And, um, you know, what they found... Certainly, Page and Beck and the Yardbirds found that if you turn that EL84-based Vox amp up, it sounded great. It distorted really easily, and it sounded great. And uh, everybody was... And by the way, Richie Blackmore was doing that, too. And Richie Blackmore, long before he, uh, he really let on, he was still using an, e, an AC30 in a lot of uh, occasions when he was playing live. Even if he had like a Marshall on stage, it was for show and he'd have like a, you know, a Vox behind it or something like that. that he was okay. running through on occasion. Anyway, the reason I bring up the EL84 in this context is because it's a very popular tube these days in these low wattage amps. Okay. So if you're buying a lunchbox based amp, like an orange tiny terror or something like that, 
or even like the Friedmans that are, you know, so popular these days. Friedman makes a 20 watt amplifier um, and it's got EL84s in it. It's still a very British sound. Um, but compared to an EL34 sound, it has less low end. Okay. And you're not going to really notice that unless you're A-Bing them back to back. It's one of those things where it's like if you don't have them both running in the room at the same time, you will think an EL an EL84 amp sounds wonderful. What's the other brand besides the Orange Tiny Terror that you mentioned? Well, Friedman, but Friedman. almost all of almost all of the small wattage amps that come out these days, like the lunchbox size amps, almost all of them. I think 98% of them, I would guess, use these tubes, EL84s. Okay. Okay? And they sound great. I'm not saying they don't. But if you plug in an EL34 amp right next to an EL84 amp, you will notice that the EL34 amp has a lot more low-end thump. Right. But that's also because there's more power running through it, or is or is it a different reason? Uh, I, I guess it's just I, I'm not sure why that is exactly. I mean, just I think the bigger tube can just produce more, right? Some for some reason. I, I mean, don't quote me on that because I I'm not you know an electronics expert or anything like that. I, I just know that it's true because I've done it. I've I have I have both kinds of amps, and when I swapped out an EL. 84 amp for an EL34 amp, even at low wattage, I noticed the increase of low end. Okay. So, again, there are a lot more tube types than this and a lot more amp sounds than just this. And these are generalizations. There are always exceptions. But this is just sort of like a good starting point for background. Okay. So so to, to wrap up the, the amplifier... Um section of this podcast um if you're a guitar player who wants to achieve the dinosaur sound uh, what would be a good starting amplifier to buy that that can achieve that without you know blowing up the house i would uh, without without spending a, like a fortune or i would i would certainly look at like the orange tiny terror series i think you i don't think you can still get brand new the original tiny terra which is what i have but they have like the dual terra and these other these other um versions of it now and they they sound great they um they are el84s not 34s but they're also not particularly expensive they sound you cannot get bad sounds out of those amps you also got the dark terror i see and the duo yeah terror. yeah yeah the micro terror um, <laughs> the micro terror is not a tube amp Okay. To my knowledge, or if it is, it just has a preamp to it. Dark Terror is probably like some metal voice. Yeah, amp, I mean, or... you'd have to go and look and see which one has the characteristics you want most, and that's sort of like you know a great place to start. Yeah, I actually have one um, that is made by Bogner. Bogner is a great company. They they make boutique sort of amps. Um, that are voiced very much like orange amps in that they have a lot of that mid-range beef. And um, what's, a, I, what's a good low wattage amp made by Bogner? The one I have is called a Bogner Atma, A-T-M-A. 
and it is really the most versatile um, lunchbox size amp I have ever seen. It's got three channels, clean, crunch, and uh, overdrive, I guess, or lead channel, uh, foot switchable. It's got uh, three different modes of, it's got three different wattages. You can run it at 18 watts, you can run it at 5 watts, or you can run it at 1 watt. Wow. So if you can imagine running it at one watt, cranked all the way up so that the, you know the power tubes are getting hot, right? But you're only at one watt. It's still it's still damn loud. Right. One watt is is cranked up. One watt is still loud. But um, you know you're certainly on the more manageable side of things when you're cranking up a one watt amp. In fact, I often grab that one when I'm I live in New York and I'm recording in my in my apartment. I will set that thing to one watt and stick it in the closet and put a mic on it, so it'll, <laughs> you know, annoy the neighbors or something. And it, and away it goes. It just does it. That's a very versatile amp, but that's not a cheap amp. That's probably like boutique uh, stuff. Yeah, but I mean, you do get what you pay for on the, in that respect. Right. And the thing with tube amps that probably not don't for s- a beginner though. I mean, or or. It's a lot of amp for a beginner. Uh, for a beginner, I would I would go with something in the Tiny Terror series. What about uh, Blackstar? I quite like that brand. Yeah, that's great too. That's similar. That came a little later. I um, I, I have nothing against those amps. There's a bunch of them now. Yeah. That you know, uh, are are doing those kinds of things. Um, the Friedman runs EL84s, which to me is a little bit of a disappointment. Um. I have an amp called a Fargen, F-A-R-G-E-N. It's a 10 watt amp that sound. It's a Marshall clone, and it and it runs an EL eighty uh, thirty four. Okay. Yeah, and to me, it's way more versatile than Friedman's uh, Friedman's twenty watt amp. It's and cool it's looking little a, it's amp. Gonna, yeah, it's going to have the the low end too that um, you're not going to get out of the eighty four. Okay. Cool. But I mean, th- these these days there are a zillion ways to get to or approximate the authentic dyno tube tone at reasonable volumes. Um, again, most guitarists that are not professionals seldom need the real thing. Certainly not for bedroom playing or practice. And there are a lot more convenient things these days to play through than this kind of amp. Uh, we are now seeing the first generation of smart amps with things like the positive grid spark where you're, you're pulling up what kind of amp you want on the phone and it just Bluetooths that into the box and it'll play rhythms for you and all of these things. Uh, this is really, you know, a discussion about traditionally how people got these, these great tones and the fact that you can still get them these days is, is really great, but there's very few places that you can crank up a 100-watt Marshall or a 50-watt Marshall these days to get full-on saturation. You know, if you're just playing in bar bands, you're not going to, you know, no no club or sound man is going to want to hear that. Right. So there are ways to do it. By the way, I've been on stage with, with two 7-watt amps running through two speakers, and the sound man's like, you're too loud, you got to turn down. You're too loud. I'm like... Dude, I'm, I'm I'm running this as as quietly as I can run it. It's just a big sound. It's not, it, you know, they're perceiving it as too loud. It's really not even as loud as they think it is. It just sounds really loud because that's the sound you're going for. Right. Okay. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting how like seven watts or ten watts can be really really loud, even though it sounds counterintuitive. Yeah, even one watt because it's it's not a it's not a uh, it's not a straight curve. Fifty watt amps are not half as loud as one hundred watt amps. They're only a little less loud, and you know a seven watt amp is not that much less than a 50 watt amp it's it's certainly it's it's you know maybe 25 percent less but it's certainly not as much as the wattage number suggests right and if you've ever played a one watt amp through a 412 cabinet it's it can get damn loud <laughs> it's it's too loud to play in an apartment without you know somehow uh, baffling it off and, and keeping the noise down right that's why you got the like the bedroom amp practice amps with the smartphone apps and all that. But that's right, a right. different different, you know right. Different category of amplifiers. Absolutely. And you know and those things do an increasingly better approximation of the tone than we used to get. But, you know, if you you know, if you're in a recording aspect, for example, when I when I do recording and I'm just putting down ideas, I will use whatever's built into the software, the amplifier that's built into the software, just to get an idea down. And I'm th- you know, you start thinking to yourself, that sounds pretty good. I've got that sounding really good. But if you compare it to when you actually put a real amp together and you put a, a microphone on the amp and you send it through the same software and you listen to it next to the, you know, the scratch track, there's no comparison. Right. It's like the old uh, fans they came up with like years ago when they came up with fat-free potato chips. And it's <laughs> yeah. like they taste pretty good unless you taste one right next to a real potato chip. <laughs> right. And then you go, ah, there's the difference. Or Diet Coke, you know. It's all right yeah. until you have a, a real Coke with the sugar. and the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, a lot of people get used to whatever it is that they're, they're playing through. I know one guy who has spent most of his life playing through a pod, which is a, uh, you know, a, a, an earlier amp simulator that was very popular about 20 years ago. And he got so used to playing through that thing as his sound that when he actually got a small Marshall combo, he really didn't know how to play through it. And he didn't enjoy the experience because he wasn't used to it. And uh, you know, he thought he was going to have this big aha moment where he was going to, you know, think, oh, this is so much better than, you know, than what I was getting through the pod. And it probably sounded better, but, you know, if it affects your performance to the point where you're not playing as well, it's not, it's not better. Right. You know, so it, it's also that. Oh, the po- I remember those things. Yeah. That's like the, one yeah. of those multi-effect, uh, yeah, I remember those. It was line six. Yeah. They they were the first with those modeling. Um, yeah, with all yeah. the modeling yeah. stuff. Right, and they still are in the game, and you know those things are not so much around anymore. They've got things that have have surpassed them, and uh, you know those things are are reasonable tools for certain applications, but you just you're not going to get that authentic tone out of it in a live or a recorded context the other thing you don't get out of it is any kind of personality really um the difference between a uh 
for example, the difference between a Marshall sound and an orange sound and a Laney sound. They're all very similar amps from a technical standpoint. They're all put together very similarly. They're kind of clones of each other in some respects with some very subtle differences. But those differences give each of those amps their own character. And, you know, what does a Black Star sound like? It, well... Does it sound like a Marshall? Does it sound like an Orange? Does it sound like what 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 amp that's got a famous more famous name? Is it trying to sound like, or is it a generic tone? Well, it, it, I think originally they they go for the Marshall sound, but okay, I think they put like two different tubes in there, and you you have a knob that lets you kind of fade between those two, so you can get both. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm but so, yeah, they, they market it as like the, the amp that can do both Marshall and Orange. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That, that's pretty cool. Um, the one I have, at least. So. There's a lot of things that like, especially with things like the pod, when, when they were very popular at the time, it was easy to see when everybody was using the same pod sounds. <laughs> you could hear it. You know, it, it was like there was no distinctiveness to it because if everybody's using a, you know, a digitally recreated tone, it's going to be the same whether I'm playing it or you're playing it or Richie Blackmore's playing it, right? Right. You'll hear the difference in the player, but the sound itself isn't going to have any, any real character of its own. And, you know, those are the things that sometimes are lost in, in these translations. You know, the, you know, there's a reason I have a, a Marshall amp. There's a reason I have an orange amp. There's a reason I have an Ampeg amp. They're all signature sounds that, you know, have their own sonic character. And, you know, trying to get those sounds from other amps isn't always easy. I have a Laney to have like a Black Sabbath sound, you know. It's, it's a different sound. Hmm. <laughs> even though it's still in the same ballpark as everything else that's got an EL-34 in it. Which is a different uh, flavor, I guess. Yeah, yeah, but some of them are very characteristic and very distinctive and very well known. Right. I remember um, a guy who, who I know who was in a band, he he bought like this this tiny little... Uh, or it wasn't that tiny. It was it, it was still a one one twelve amp, but it was this old, beat up little amp that um, Keith Richards used, uh, or the same type, yeah. I should say, in recording early Stone stuff. And mm -hmm. that amp could only do one sound, but that was exactly that sound. Right, and that and what I'm saying is, in a lot of respects, if you're not a beginner and you're you're you know. You're acquiring gear over a lifetime. That getting one amp that has that one characteristic sound is very appealing. And it's funny because it's like most of the time I don't I love the Rolling Stones. But most of the time I'm going for a heavy rock or a metal sound and I'm not really going for a stonesy guitar sound. It's not dinosaur but, sound, right? Well, it's not really. It's it's much more of a it's a less distorted sort of American based sound. Um, the glory days of the Stones, they were 
they were using uh, Ampeg amps. They were using uh, V4s and sometimes even SVTs. And um, if you think of like Sticky Fingers, the sound of the guitars on Can You Hear Me Knockin', and all of those songs, and certainly the live album, Get Your Yayas Out, that is the sound of Ampeg amps. Okay. And uh, it has a very different distortion characteristic than anything British. It's, it's, it's a, it has a bark to it. It's not this warm, smooth crunch. It kind of barks at you. And it's, it's almost obnoxious <laughs> in, its, in its distortion. I mean, if you listen to like, you know, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, you'll hear exactly what I'm talking about. It's a tone that sort of barks at you. And I have this 15-watt um, this Ampeg lunchbox size head that if I plug that amp in, I get that sound. And that, you know, I don't use it often, but when I want that Stonesy sound, it's right in that box. It's really, it's, you know, that's, that's what's valuable uh, to me in, in, as a recording. Yeah, listen to that. Yeah, it's kind of a nasty sound. Scuzzy, isn't it? Yeah. And it barks at you. Yeah. It's a completely different kind of distortion than anything British. Yeah, you're it's... not getting that from an EL34. You're not getting that from an EL84. What What's a real good example of like the typical smooth British sound to contrast this with? Um, put on anything from Highway to Hell. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah. That's pure martial plexi. Yeah. It's different for sure. It's smoother. It's warm, it's smooth, and it's warm. And it's not obnoxious in the same way. Right. Well, I guess, but at the same time, that sound just fit the stones perfectly. Because I guess that that's what they had. I mean... But, yeah, and and yeah. Keith was never going for the kind of sound that you and I are talking about today. He was ne- he was never interested in in being a heavy rock kind of band, right? You know. So, uh, and by the way, their amplification has changed a lot over the over the years. They started out in the '60s playing the Voxes, same ones that the Beatles and the Yardbirds were playing, and then they moved on to some other things. And then by the time you get into the late '60s, they were playing these amplifiers because. They were powerful enough to drive these huge places like Madison Square Garden and Altamont and all these these big festivals that they were playing. These were very high, powerful amplifiers, and um, it became very characteristic of their tone from the late 60s into the early 70s. And uh, I love that tone in its context. It's not a tone I want to use for you know my whole life. But I love being able to think to myself when I'm recording a song or something like, wouldn't it be cool if I had a Stonesy sound on, you know, the left side of this track and I pull out that Ampeg amp and there it is. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And it's really cool in that respect. So knowing, this is why I'm saying knowing the tube types will help you understand what it is you're going for. If your favorite player is using an amp that has an EL34 in it. Your your best bet, even if you can't afford a Marshall, 
is to go and find something else that's got an EL34 in it, and then just using your, you know, your EQ, your, your either your your tone knobs on the amp, or you get an EQ pedal or something like that, you're going to get very close to that sound. Right. If you get something that has a completely different tube in it, you're you're not going to get anywhere close. And and all the stuff we're talking about is also on the on the dinosaurrockguitar.com website. Right. The, the the power tubes. I'm on the power tube page now. Yeah. We have yeah we have a knowledge base on the site. If you go into the knowledge base, you will you will find a lot of topics on. Uh, sonics and tone and and you know guitars amps cabs speakers effects playing recording and things that are just on tone and there are some articles that are you know based on tone that um i've written or they're ones that i've pointed to and uh you know there's an article on you know things like tone is in the fingers uh that's one of those things that always bother me when people said that um, I understand what they mean by that, but it isn't useful in the context of any kind of gear discussion, you know, to say, oh, well, this guy's tone is in his fingers or all tone is in the fingers. So it doesn't matter what gear you use. That's patently untrue. Um, I can tell you, for example, I actually own an amplifier that Wolf Hoffman of Accept used to own. And it's got his, it's got, it was a custom amp he had built. His settings are on the actual faceplate, right? So he had these little marks of like where he set his tone knobs and stuff. That's cool. Right. So if I turn that amplifier on and I have it set to his tone settings and I start playing balls to the wall, it sounds like except, and it it has nothing to do with my fingers. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it, it, it's like, you, you know, when people say tone is in the fingers, they're talking more about the player's touch, their technique. What's this sound? Yeah. Damn, that's a mean sound, man. Yep. It's good. Yeah. I mean, I have also had the opportunity, for example... At one time, I owned a Tony Iommi SG, uh, a Gibson Tony Iommi SG, which has his custom pickups in it, and it was his all of his specs and stuff. And I plugged it into my friend who had a Laney hundred watt half stack, and it sounded exactly like his sound. I mean, you start playing Black Sabbath sounds, and you get this big grin on your face because that's the sound. His his signature pickups through that kind of rig. It produces that sound, or as close as you're going to get without having his hands. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like, so you can say these things, the tone is in the fingers, and I understand what people mean by that, and it's not a completely useless statement, but if we're talking about, how, about trying to get specific sounds, it's almost useless, because right. that's not what anyone's talking about. They're talking about the gear sounds. All right. You ready to move on to guitars? Yes, let's do it. Okay, so we're going to move on to talking about guitars and pickups, and uh, I've gone back and forth about how I want to talk about this multiple times, and I keep coming back to the idea that 
kind of like the thing with the tube tone. Understanding your guitars is a lot about understanding the pickups. And for those who don't know what the pickups are, on any electric guitar, the pickup is the thing that sits underneath the strings that capture the vibration of the strings, turn it into an electronic signal that gets sent out to the amplifier. Um, without those, it's making no sound other than what it does acoustically. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit about pickups and then get more into the actual guitar thing because, like with amps and where I said it's more important to understand what kind of tubes sound, what kind of tube sound you're after. It's it's similar with guitars. Uh, because there are a zillion guitars on the market and they all have one of three types of pickups. They all either have a humbucker pickup, which I'll talk about what that is, a single coil pickup, which I'll talk about what that is, and a no or a noiseless single coil pickup. And every guitar on the market, especially those that we're talking about for heavy rock and melodic metal, you're talking about solid-bodied electric guitars. That means they have not like an acoustic where they have a sound hole and it's creating its own sound. The sound is purely coming through the, these pickups, catch, capturing the vibration of the strings. Okay. And, and whether you're buying a Gibson or a Fender or an Ibanez or any brand you care to name, uh, you know, a BC Rich, the most, it doesn't matter what brand of guitar you're talking about. Every guitar that we're going to talk about is using either a humbucker sound, a single coil sound, or a noiseless single coil sound. So okay. I think it's it's important to understand that because if there are beginners out there who are trying to you know get a specific kind of sound and they say, well, gee, I want to have a you know a Les Paul because of Slash, but I can't afford a Les Paul. You may be able to get something that sounds like it, that's cheaper. And you you know you know you won't buy you won't be buying something that has the wrong kind of pickups in it to get that sound. Right. Well, that's kind of what I did uh, with the. Uh, let's see, I can pull it pulled up here. This thing here, I just put uh, yeah. Seymour Duncan's in there, and I get right. pretty so close. If you hold, if you if you're watching the podcast, if we we're doing video here, the pickups point to the pickups, so the people know. Yeah, it, the, these know are the pickups. Talking. Yeah, they have. And what you're seeing there is two coils, okay? Can you get it a little closer so people can see what Let's that see. really looks like? I'll hit it on. Let's not, hold on. All <laughs> right. I got to go around the microphone. Yeah. <coughs> All right. Let's see. I can so can't really see what I'm doing. Yes. Okay. So this is a humbucker pickup. If you look closely, you'll see there are two single black coils. Uh, originally, guitars, before this design happened, you had one coil. These are two next to each other, typically, you know, stacked like that on top, you know, next to each other. And each one of those silver screws on top of the thing is a is a pole piece to pick up the sound of the string that is over it. Yeah. All this is is magnets with copper wire round wound around these magnets to create induction field, I believe. And it captures the uh, the sound of the vibrating string and sends it on its merry way through the electronics of the of the guitar. So all guitars on the markets use either humbuckers, single coils, or what they call stacked or noiseless single coils. 
So, and because very few guitar designs themselves create truly distinctive sounds, I find it more useful to discuss the guitar's tonal aspects in terms of the pickup tone. Okay, so you're basically saying if you have a baseball bat and you you put humbuckers on it and you uh, tune it right, you can get it to sound like a, like a guitar. Or well, it'll certainly give you a humbucker tone. Right. Um, it may not sound particularly in the case of a baseball bat, but uh, <laughs> well, but it's an extreme you know, example. No, but if you put you know if you put a if you put a humbucker in a Telecaster. It's going to start sounding more like a Gibson, and we'll get to that in a bit. So, um, again, so if you if you like if you if there's somebody who's a, a guitar hero of yours and you want you want to sound like this player in some ways, aside from the amplifier aspects of these things, you should ask yourself: Does the player use a humbucker sound or a single coil sound? And historically. Fender guitars used single coils in Strats and Telecasters, and Gibson used humbuckers from 1957 on in their guitars. Their guitars, popular ones for this genre, would be Les Pauls, SGs, Flying Vs, and Explorers. Okay, so a good single coil sound example would be Jimi Hendrix, right? Um, The cleaner sounds, I think, would be, you know, classic... Jimmy's clean sounds and things like that are, are like a. Yep. It's, it's like a typical. Uh... Yep. It's a little wing, by the way, one of my favorite songs. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, like I said, historically, Gibsons used humbuckers, Fenders used single coils. There are, there are exceptions to that, but this is a generalization. And today, there are many ways to configure and customize guitars to take advantage of both types of pickups. And, of course, most guitarists, whether they're professionals or not, commonly have guitars with both types of pickups in. So it's not uncommon for, for a lot of players, who, whether they're even just bedroom players, to have both of those kinds of sounds available to them at all times. If you only have one guitar, it's important to know which sound you, you really want. And, and and, could... Or, you know, you, do, will you, do you want to have something that will try to give you both of those sounds? Right. Well, a good, good example of a humbucker sound, for example, in combination with a Marshall, I guess, because, you know, you have to give that caveat there, too, because the amplifier makes a big difference, too, is... Put on anything from Zeppelin 2 except Whole Lot of Love, which has too many effects on it to, to. Or Slash 2, right? Yeah, but I mean, if you want to really hear it stripped down and it's it's less gainy sort of uh, application. Yeah. You know, put on Heartbreaker or something. Let's see, Heartbreaker. That's another brilliant song. But. <laughs> Yeah. There it is. I mean, now, now I want to listen to the whole song. <laughs> no, but um, now that's just single notes. But um, yeah, uh, the so we'll get into why these these things are important. 
true single coil pickups arrived first in both Fender and Gibson designs. Um, the problem with a single coil, when they invented this, I think they invented it in the late 30s or early 40s. Uh, it predates rock and roll. Uh, it was really the electric guitar came about from guitarists being in big bands uh, in the 40s and stuff. They, they couldn't be heard because they were only acoustic guitars. Uh, and, you know, to, to have the guitar player actually be heard in a band of 30 or 40 other musical instruments, it was almost impossible. So what they started to do was try to figure out how to amplify the guitar. And when they did, they came up with the idea of a pickup, which again is a coil of copper wire wrapped around a magnet under the strings to pick up the sound of the vibrating string. Okay. They did this with one coil at first. And while it worked, what they found was when you amplified the sound, it was really easy for that pickup to pick up more than the string. It would pick up other noise and it would pick up like uh, fluorescent lights or any kind of electronic field that was in a room and it would create a horrible hum through your amplifier. Okay. And this was, you know, they, on the technical side of this, they call this a 60 cycle hum. And it, it, because it, you know, if you were to put a meter on it, it comes in at 60 cycles in the spectrum. And that's just the, the, uh, the current that switches back and forth. Right. And the thing is, if you had, you know, if you were playing in a, in a venue where the wiring in the venue was dodgy, and this was back in the days before, you know, grounded wall circuits and things like that. I mean, I, I, before I moved back to New York, I was living in a house that was built in 1953. And when I moved into the thing, none of the wall circuits had grounded plugs. <laughs> they were all the old two prong thing with no ground thing. I spent, I spent a lot of money on an electrician just having him replace them with grounded uh, circuits. It's also but, pretty dangerous, you know, man. Yeah. Not only that, I knew I was building a studio and I knew it was going to be terrible because, you know, the sound would be, you know, it would be noisy as hell. So, if you, you know, if you were in a situation where there was a lot of devices or the wiring or the lighting creating an electronic field, it was very common for you to get this hum through the amplifier when you were using a single coil pickup. So what Gibson did was to try and solve that problem was instead of having one coil, they they took they took a second coil and they put it together and the two coils like on Diedrich's guitar sat next to each other and they canceled each other out and they canceled out the hum and what they did was they bucked the hum and that's why they these these pickups are called hum bucking pickups they are hum bucker pickups and all of a sudden you had the ability to play louder and this hum wouldn't be in, as part of your sound. Right. And it, it also created a different sound. Um, single coils produce a very characteristic, sparkly, sort of clean sound that you heard on that Hendrix track. And humbuckers are more of a warm, uh, smooth tone. Uh, they don't tend to have that, that sort of that sparkly sound as much. Uh, they're warm and smooth, especially in, in 
this genre of music. And what's the you also sometimes see humbuckers that are exposed, like the ones on my guitar, but sometimes they're also covered with uh, right. Right. There's there's you know there are people who will claim that makes some sort of a sonic difference. It's not, it's a negligible difference if there is one, but yeah. For example, most Les Pauls coming out of the shop, they have a cover over the pickup. A lot of a lot of them will have a cover over the pickup. Um, it's not necessary to be there, but it's just you know aesthetics, maybe. Yeah, I think in some respects it is. You could make the argument, although it's not really a big problem, but you, you know it protects the you know the copper wiring, which is really thin. It protects it from you know accidentally getting damaged. Although I don't think that's you know a big problem or anything, but you know. All right. So uh, at some point, so you you had this this development. This came in 1957, and Gibson from then on was mostly using humbuckers, and Fender was still using single coils. Okay. And at some point between the late 70s and the early 80s, I don't remember exactly when it came in, but it was in that period we saw the arrival of what they call a stacked single coil pickup, which was basically, again, trying to add that second coil to cancel out the hum, but instead of sticking it next to the thing like this, if you're looking at it front on, like on Diedrich's guitar, it was one on top of the other, kind of like one behind the other, like that. So that, for example, in a Strat or Telecaster, it would still look the same from the front. It, d- it d- wouldn't be double wide. It would be double tall, okay, double deep or, or something like that, one on top of the other rather than one next to the other. And the principle was the same thing. If you get two coils together, they can, they can stop the hum. And did they pr- produce a different sound as well? Or? They produce a slightly different sound than a true single coil. So if you buy a Stratocaster today, does it have one of those stack humbuckers or is it still... You can buy them either way. So here's the thing. We talked about this as sort of like back in the day, if you're in the days of uh, Jimi Hendrix or Richie Blackmore or Gary Moore, you know, you'd you'd have these guys who were playing Strats with true single coils and then Robin Trower... And, you know, they would deal with the hum one way or another. Uh, Anyone who's ever played one of these guitars knows that, like, if you're standing one way and it's really loud, you can turn yourself to the left or to the right, and you may be able to minimize that that humming sound. And sometimes it even picks up the radio or something. Right, or the television or something like that. Anything that's creating an electronic field. Now, what do we have in 2020... And for the last 20 years, in terms of electronic field generating devices around us these days, we have computers, we have laptops, we have screens for computers, for desktops, we have cell phones, we have all of these things creating. It's, it's never been harder to use a true single coil pickup than it is now. Yeah, the entire air is charged with... Right. And by the way, back in the day, you'd go into a recording studio and the only thing that was likely to create that hum was the lights in the room. Now, the control room is full of computer monitors, full of computers, and everybody is standing around in the room has a cell phone on them. 
<laughs> right. So it's it's like really, really hard to use true single coils these days. Or you can maybe shield a studio, but that's pretty expensive you to do, you right? Can't, it's very hard to do. And I can give you an anecdotal uh, story of this. I Like I said, I was in this house that was built in 1953 with a lot of bad wiring in it, not up to up to modern standard wiring in it. And I had one of my single coil Strat guitars. It was noisy as hell. And for what it's worth, even the humbuckers were noisy in that house. Not not anywhere near as noisy, but you could still hear something, right? You could still hear some sort of a, a low level of hum that, you know, you wouldn't hear normally because of the wiring being old. And um, one of the things you can do is you can take your guitar to a tech and you can, A, you can change it for the noiseless, the pickups. You can change the pickups to noiseless pickups. I didn't want to do that. I liked the sound of this guitar the way it was. I just wanted it to be quiet. So what you can do is you can take it and there's this thing called a dummy coil. You can have a, a, a competent a, a guitar tech wire up a dummy coil to have that second coil that will cancel out the, the single coil sound. And it won't create... Um, anything sonic, you're just using it as a hum-canceling coil. Okay. It's not there for creating tone or anything like that. It's just there for that. I had that done to my guitar. I bring it back to my house. Actually, I had it done to my guitar. I picked it up in his shop, and when I listened to it in his shop, it was quiet. And I brought, I brought another guitar with me that had another Strat I have that has single coils in it, and I compared the one that he had worked on to the one that he hadn't worked on. And the one that he put the dummy coil in was definitely quieter in his shop. When I got it home, it still hummed. <laughs> so uh, your environment is a real factor in this if you are going to run single coil pickups. So that's why a lot of people these days aren't doing that. It's very hard to do it live. It's very hard. It's It's... Uh, it's one of those things where if you're in a live environment and you're playing loud and you're using a, a, a real single coil pickup, after you're done playing your song, as soon as you hit that last note, you got to roll the volume down or you're going to have eh, coming through your amp. Yeah. You don't notice it so much when you're playing loud, but when you're not playing, it's obnoxious as, as can be. Yeah, I got a Stratocaster and, also and when, I, when I'm playing uh, in front of the computer and it really matters what It's terrible. I'm, yeah, right. it, it's like this obnoxious, like right? It's, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you know, if you, if you've not experienced it, you can't. You know, you can't really imagine it. But it, it's it gets very annoying very quickly. So they came up with these noiseless single coil pickups sometime, like I said, between the late seventies and the early eighties, and they're designed they're designed to sound like a single coil and to fit in the space of a single coil, and. Um, it's a bit of a compromised solution, but it's mostly effective. Your tone snobs like Eric Johnson will tell you that a noiseless single coil just doesn't sound quite as good as a true single coil. And I believe that. Uh, you don't have to be at his level of hearing to, to hear that there, you, you're, you're not getting quite what you're getting out of a true single coil. But for most applications, they sound close enough and they solve the noise issue. And unless you're going for a true vintage authenticity, they're a much better option for a single coil sound in, in high gain applications. 
hmm. these days than anything like a, a really vintage sounding single coil. And all of the companies that make pickups, not only the companies like Fender who will certain, you know, Jeff Beck now uses noiseless pickups in his strats. Okay, and then and the ones that Fender built for him. Fender makes them. Uh, if you're buying a classic Strat design, not not something more modern. If you're buying, you know, an American Stratocaster or a you know a, a made in Mexico Stratocaster or something like that with true single coils in it, you're still getting single coils. But they do have models that have noiseless single coils in them that they make. And of course, all of the aftermarket pickup makers like Seymour Duncan and DiMarzio and all of these other companies that are boutiques, they too make noiseless single coil pickups now. And you've seen a lot more of that because of this rise in technology that we have now uh, where, you know, we, we live with electronic fields bombarding us all the time. Yeah. I've, I've also seen these um, single coils that are sort of, in in a Z like the like the the fir, or, or a Z like the first yeah. three strings are higher than the other ones. That's just a staggered thing. That that's just um, a different take on some sort of tonal aspect of it. The other thing that we didn't mention yet is that Gibson, before they f- d- developed the first humbuckers, they also had a pickup called the P90, which was a bigger pickup than Fender was using, but it was a single coil. And it had a really great brown, nasty sound uh, to that. Um, I'll have you bring up a sound clip later. Uh, but um, there's like basically like mega single single pickup. It's an overwound coil, basically. Okay. So it's it because it's bigger. There's more coil windings around it, and it it was a it. They are great sounding pickups. They have a really gnarly great sound to them see what about these things like i think this is yeah that just means that the um those those are the adjustable pole pieces for those pickups and generally what you see is they're all in one line right okay what you see here these are humbuckers okay there's a coil under each one of these uh if we're looking at the bottom pickup here you have one two three and then you have nothing right but uh, there are three there were three other pole pieces underneath this cover. Okay. That, that have that don't have adjustable screws. Oh, seat, I see. Right? So they're just letting you adjust which uh, which end of the uh pickup you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. And these are the P nineties, right? Right. Those look like P nineties, yeah. Just basically big single coils. Right. Okay. What kind of um, what kind of sound is it? What kind of sound do, do those make? Like a brown sound? Is like I'm thinking ZZ Top immediately when I'm when when I hear that term. For P90s. Or no, just brown sound. You know. Well, um, that's certainly that's a subjective term, and it's 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 a term that sort of was originally used to characterize Van Halen's early sound and stuff like that. Uh, it, it's, everybody has their own sort of take on what that means. And it's, it's, it's too, uh, subjective to really talk about, Okay. you know, what it, what it really means. But, um, I, what I can say is most of the dinosaur rock guitar sound is a humbucking pickup sound for the okay. most part. 
mostly that was born out of you know necessity because when you're running a high volume and using gain, you don't want all of that extra noise that was created by a single coil pickup. So it's mostly for for 70s hard rock and 80s melodic metal. That sound is a humbucking sound, and it's mostly in the bridge position of the guitar. And bridge position means it's the position of the pickup that's closest to the bridge on the guitar. It's further away from the neck. Yeah. That is the classic sound of this genre. So that's the that's the one on the bottom. Right. The one that's furthest away from the neck. And that kind of gives like a mean, bitey, bright sound. It, it gives you it gives you the, the, the brighter sound because it's closer to the bridge. And you get a more mellow woody sound when you're closer to the neck. Right. So, so that said, saying that, you know, the humbucker pickup in the bridge position of the guitar is pretty much the definitive sound of 70s heavy rock and 80s melodic metal. There's a lot of guys who love the single coil sound and have put it to good use even in, in that genre. And what we're talking about there is Hendrix on Strats, Robin Trower on Strats, Beck on Telecasters and Strats. He now, Like I said, he now uses the noiseless pickups. Jimmy Page when he was on a Telecaster. What songs Less- did, did uh, Jimmy Page play a Telecaster? Well, believe it or not, the whole first album first Zeppelin album and everything he did with the Yardbirds was a Telecaster. Oh, wow. But the first Zeppelin album is, uh, for years, Jimmy Page let everyone think, this is an an interview in Guitar Player Magazine where he said uh, he used a Telecaster on the first album through a Supro amp. And he was actually lying because he didn't want anyone to know what he was really using. Years later in a book, he cleared it up. He said he was using a Telecaster through a box Super Beetle amp on the uh, first Zeppelin album. And Why would you lie about that? Because if you tell people how to get your sound, at least in those days, he was afraid that everybody was going to snap up the kind of amp that he used to get it. Uh. And, and it did happen with Supro, by the way. There's a reason Supro is still on the map, even though that wasn't what he used. The folklore surrounding that <laughs> put that put that company to where they're still making amps. Wow. Um, Are they good amps at all? They're okay. There's nothing wrong with them. And you can, you know, they're, you know, you can, oh, they're a small sort of practice amp size amp. But the interesting thing on Zeppelin one is that it shows that in the studio, if you listen to Dazed and Confused, it sounds exactly like a Les Paul through a Marshall. I mean, it it really does. And a lot of that is studio magic and it's how he EQ'd those guitars and amps to sound. Right. Let's see. Go a little further in. Yeah, I think so. Go to the solo. That's where you really... Man, that's such a great song too. Here we go. I can't listen to this without smiling, man. Yeah.
Well, no, anyway. now you told me that it's a Telecaster, I kind of it does kind of sound different than than this. You know, now I know it does kind of. You know, now I actually know I kind of hear it. You know. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, it also in in a lot of ways it sounds very much like a Les Paul through a Marshall. Yeah, and uh, you know that's what you can achieve in a studio when you have all of these EQs and stuff at, at your disposal to, to ch- sort of push the sound around and, and change how it sounds. And, you know, it, it's interesting that by the, by the second album, Jimmy Page is on to Marshall's and Les Paul's. And, but what it tells me is that even before he actually made that switch to Les Paul's and Marshall's, he had that sound in his head. Hmm. He went for it on, on the first album. Even though he didn't have, even though he wasn't using a Les Paul and a Marshall, that was the sound he wanted. Right, and it's a great sound. It is. So, uh, but prior to that, you know, if you listen to him with with the Yardbirds, it sounds more like a Telecaster. He's playing through. Uh, I think he was playing through some AC thirties, some Voxes. As I said, Leslie West was the guy who was who was the big proponent of using the P90 back then. Um, if you want to put on something like um, Mississippi Queen or uh, a bit of Nantucket Sleigh Ride, you'll hear the you know the Les Paul Jr. sound with the P90 pickup. It's mountain, right? Yep. Let's see. Oh, yeah. It's a fuzzy... What kind of embers he use? That's ballsy as hell. Yeah. Man, so much good music. Anyway, you asked what he was using. Um, Super fuzzy. Yeah, I I believe at that time he was using Sun Coliseum amps that he bought off of Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix was using, when he was in the United States, he was using Sun Coliseum amps. And uh, when he went to England, he said, I want what Pete Townsend's using. And Townsend was using the Marshalls. And they went over and got him Marshalls. And from then on, he used Marshalls. And when he sold the Sun Coliseum amps, he sold them to to Mountain. Okay. And Leslie West, I think, was using those until he got onto Marshalls. But for years, Leslie West played uh, was known for playing a Les Paul Jr. with P90s in it. And okay. um, that was his sound. But other single coil guys, Blackmore on Strats, right? Like Deep Purple. And Rainbow, yeah. Uli Roth with the Scorpions and by himself on Strats. Ingve Malmsteen on Strats, he was always using noiseless pickups. He, in fact, has developed his own signature pickups for both DiMarzio and for Duncan. I think he's on the Duncans now. Okay. Um, and then two guys who don't really count in this genre very much anymore was Clapton when he was on a Strat because he wasn't really playing hard rock anymore at that point. And Eric Johnson, who was also not a very heavy player, but he he also will use a Les Paul on occasion, but he's you're mostly seeing him with a vintage strat with true single coils. Okay. I I think the the neck pickup strat through through like a slightly overdriven tube and that's like that typical Hendrix sound. I think that's so so lovely. 
Right. It's just, and uh, the, you know, the interesting thing is the middle position pickup on a Stratocaster, it has three pickups for those who don't know. The middle position pickup is not one that gets a lot of use, but one guy who uses it a lot is Robin Trowler. Okay. Robin Trowler, I think his main sound comes from the middle pickup. I think that's his favorite one. Okay, what, what's a good example of that um, that noise? Um, put on uh, Two Rolling Stones. It's a good title for a song, too. Yeah. Robin Trower. I got to be careful not to make it too obvious. That's why I'll talk over it a little bit until the guitar shows up. Otherwise, the algorithms will notice and will just block this video. Typical Stratocaster sound. With a wah. And that's good. I need to listen more to Robin Trower, man. Yeah. It's good music. He's great. Alright, so the guys who have, who are associated with the humbucker tone, in at least the bridge position, as we were talking about, was Clapton when he was on Les Pauls and SGs, Page on Les Pauls, Jeff Beck when he was on Les Pauls, Tony Iommi on SGs, pretty much all the two guitar bands, the guys in Kiss, ACDC, Thin Lizzy, Aerosmith, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Queensryche, those are all humbucker sounds. Guns and Roses. Guns and Roses, exactly. Lifeson, uh, Ronnie Montrose, Michael Shanker, Neil Sean, Dave Minichetti, obviously Eddie Van Halen, uh, became famous for putting humbuckers in strats. Um, all of Ozzy's guitarist, Ozzy only wants guys in his band to play humbuckers. <laughs> yeah, really? Uh, really, yeah. He had, um, when Randy died and they originally got uh, Bernie Torme for a, a few minutes to replace him, Bernie played Strats, and they were like, we don't want you playing that. So, wow. uh, Randy Rhodes, Jake, and Zach. I wonder what that conversation sounded like. Oh, why do you play a fucking uh, Stratocaster? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you're, you're going in there trying to play songs that Randy had played with humbuckers. Right. Right, so, you know, it's part of the, you know, it was part of the sound. Yeah. But, um... Almost all of the 80s metal guys, Sykes, Lynch, Wolf Hoffman, Vivian Campbell, Martini, Akira Takasaki, Satriani, Vi, Vandenberg, Slash, as you said, uh, John Petrucci, all play humbucker pickups mostly, Doug Aldrich also, and... Some of the guys who were associated with both sort of equally were Gary Moore, who played Strats and Les Pauls pretty much evenly. And so does John Norum for the most part, although he, he's a little more Les Paul these days. But earlier on, he was doing a lot with Strats, and he's still pretty much, if he's not 50-50, he's 
Uh, you're just as likely to see him with a Strat as you are with the Les Paul. And you also have these um, humbucker guitars that that have a preamp in them. Like you have to put a nine volt battery in them to right, right. boost them even harder. I think. Right, and that's for specific sounds, but um, it's it's still at its heart, it's still a humbucker. And, you know, the construction of these things is another whole deep dive into, you know, magnet design and all of that stuff, the different kinds of magnets, whether they're, you know, Alnico magnets or ceramic magnets, and, you know, whether they're Alnico 3s or 5s or whatever the heck it is, it, it gets really, really into a lot of detail very fast. But I think from the, from the layman's standpoint, it's important to say if you're a guitarist and you don't know what, you know, what you're looking for or, or want, you say, okay, I, I want kind of what Slash has. You don't want to go and buy a guitar with single coil pickups. Right. You know, that's not the sound you want. Or if, you, if you're into Ingve, you don't want, you know, you don't want to go buy a Les Paul. So it, it's really about these tones that are created and by the way we're going to we're going to we're going to talk about the designs of the guitars now we're talking in the very basic uh most common kinds of designs that we're talking about the the oldest vintage most popular designs of guitars are the ones we're talking about strats les pauls telecasters these are you know guitars that were designed in the early 50s and still, everything else is based on those designs. Whether they look like it or not, they're still based on the designs that are those old classic designs. Okay. Which will segue nicely into the guitar talk itself. And again, we're, we're, still, we're, just, we're still just focused on solid body electric guitars for this genre. We're not talking about guitars that are jazz boxes and, and semi-hollows and things like that for... By and large, you're not going to get that kind of, you know, guitar in this style of music because in a lot of respects, they don't make well with loud amplifiers being cranked the way we've been talking about them having, you know, running them full out. If, you, if you're if you running semi-hollow guitars through those kinds of rigs, there's an awful lot of feedback, you know, associated with that that is unwanted. Yeah. So, and I would also argue that that a uh, semi-hollow guitar is not really a beginner's guitar either, right? I mean, it's generally... Not anymore. Not anymore. I mean, there was a time where that was true, obviously, when, you know, prior to the advent of solid body electrics. But, yeah, I think, you know, no one's first guitar is a 335 these days, you know? And they're expensive, too. They're very expensive because they're harder to make. Very pretty, though. And I love the sound for what they do, but yeah. Yeah, they're great in certain contexts, and they can even be good in the context of this genre, but it's rare. Right. I know, um, like a band, like a re semi-recent band that used those guitars is uh, Oasis. I know, like they. Well, they, I think also. Yeah. Um, and of course, the blues guys. Dave Grohl uses a some kind of a hybrid Gibson thing that is sort of like an ES-35 body with like a Firebird neck on it. I don't know what it's called. Wow. It's, it's his own custom model, and it's semi-hollow. Okay. And, you know, they're playing loud loud rock and roll. So, I mean, it can be done. It's not that it can't be done. But, I mean, Alex Lifeson was doing it in Rush uh, in, the, in the 70s. He was known for having a 335 or a 355. 
and uh, he made it work. But, you know, there are easier ways to get it done, as you said, and cheaper ways to get it done. Those guitars tend to be more expensive. They tend to, instead of responding well to feedback, they tend to squeal and squawk, you know, and that's one of the reasons they're not very popular in in loud music. Right. Yeah, if you're standing in front of an uh, enormous Marshall stack with one of those things, you, uh, yeah, you'll get right. only I mean, feedback. Get a, yeah, but I mean, there's good feedback and then there's the horrible feedback, right? Yeah. There's the desirable warm feedback that you get where you just, where the amp, you know, with, you interact with the amp and you, you know, you get this thing where, you know, you can start getting the, the, the singing feedback that you can play with the bar and make it do all kinds of things. And then there's the things that just squeak and squawk, right? Yeah. And the squeak and squawk is what you get from hollow bodies and semi-hollow bodies when they get loud. Where you don't get control and you can, right. yeah. Because it, you don't have that, that, you know, it's, it's that tone chamber that's inside of the guitar that's reacting and it doesn't have that mass in there to, to keep it from, producing the the uh, it, it creates those those bad unwanted feedback sounds right yeah okay so oh. <laughs> we got the we got the solid body guitars right now very few solid body electric guitar designs create truly distinctive sounds that's yeah. interesting yeah and it, when you think about it because you there's so much fuzz in marketing being made about wood being used and the wood of the neck and the wood of the body. Yeah, and it's not that it isn't a factor. It is a factor. But, um, you know, it, you're, you know, the word marketing does come to mind here. And, you know, some of this is, is marketing stuff and some of this is uh, tone snobbery and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, the desire for vintage and there's a lot of trends in the design but um, what I want to talk about is really that these early designs that are the most popular guitars of all time the Strat the Telecaster, the Les Paul the SG if you will um, everything that has come since then is basically you know, chasing one of those sounds. It's either chasing a Fender sound or it's chasing a Gibson sound. And, you know, all of these guitars that are made for, you know, you know, for metal and, you know, for shred and all of these things, at their core, they're still solid body electrics that um, have a humbucker in them or a single coil in them. And they are going after one of these tones or the other. So when you think about it, the design itself, very few electric guitar designs create truly distinctive sounds. And the first two that come to mind that do are the Les Paul and the Telecaster. Okay. Now, Stratocasters have an, an iconic sound or sounds, if you will. They're by far the most popular guitar of all time. But... The Stratocaster is not so much known for its distinctive sound, but for its tonal versatility. 
and there's a difference there. That's so, a, but a Telecaster kind of has has like uh, like a very distinctive twangy sound, you know? Exactly, exactly. So, I contend it's easier to fake a Strat sound with a non-Strat guitar than it is to fake a Les Paul or a Telecaster sound. And when you start talking about Super Strats, which are Strats with humbuckers in them, that's definitely true. All you have to do to get you know, a, a, a super strat to sound more like a classic strat is to use a coil cutter and, and, you know, silence one of the humbuckers coils so you can get a single coil sound out of, out of, out of that. And there you are. You pretty much have a, a fendery sound out of your super strat. Well, super strats, those were big in the eighties, right? From like the, the yeah, metal. They were uh... very big and they're, you know, and to a degree they're still big, but, um, if you go back, you know, the first of these guitars was the Telecaster. It, it predated the Strat and it predated the Les Paul. And the reason its tone is so distinctive is really due to its bridge pan. Uh, that part around the bridge that um, was usually brass back in the day. I think, it, you know, they've changed what it is. It's not always brass anymore. Sometimes it's steel. But um, the, the bridge pan is what gives the telly its characteristic twang. Okay. And you can make a Telecaster sound like a Strat, but it's hard to make any other guitar sound like a Telecaster unless you put one of those bridge pans on it. Okay, that's you know interesting. I, mean? I didn't, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. I, I knew um, that, that, uh, that um, Telecasters were known for, that, you know, I've, I've played around with them, and that's the only guitar that sounds like a Telecaster. But, right, and you got you got to start ask yourself why is that? Yeah, why is that? Yeah, why is that? What's different about a Telecaster than a Strat than a you know Gibson? And you start looking at the thing, and if you know you know how much the bridge really is a huge tonal factor on any guitar, that bridge pan, that big piece of metal sitting there, is the reason it has that twang. Now you can make a Telecaster sound like a Strat. A Strat but like I said, it's hard to make any any other guitar sound like a telly. Uh, but that lipstick my, element in the neck is also pretty unique, although... Yeah, it's... and most people replace that, quite honestly, unless it's like a vintage guitar that they don't want to mess with. It's not a very usable pickup in that in that. It's slot. a weird tone, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of people will put in a different pickup there, something that's, you know, a more modern alternative. But, but and this is that what kind of uh, it's it's not really it's it's sort of a single coil, right? It is. Well, they're both coil, they're both it's... single coils, okay? They're both single coils, but uh, it's a different kind of single coil. And I'm not I've never been a telly guy, so I'm not like super into all of the aspects of the telly. But uh, let's see what what's, mostly, a, what's mostly, a good example of a telly caster sound. Uh. Well, there's a lot of guys playing tellies, but I, I guess if you want to look at a Telecaster in uh, in this genre, you might want to look at something like um, Jeff Beck in the Yardbirds. If, what's a song I can, can pull um, up as, a, as an example? Bring up... Um, Heart Full of Soul. A heart full of soul. 
by the Yardbirds. He's also using a fuzz pedal. Yeah. Very twangy. Yeah. Man, I need to listen to, to all this music that I'm putting on more, man. Especially with headphones. It's so good. Yeah. So, uh, again, we also talked about <clears> the <throat> fact that Zeppelin one that was a Telecaster, but it doesn't really sound like a characteristic Telecaster. And oddly enough, it's easier to make a Telecaster sound like a Les Paul than it is for a lot of other guitars. Um, right. That said, you know, if you put a humbucker in a Telecaster, it actually sounds more like a Les Paul than a, a humbucker in a Strat does, in my opinion. Hmm. And my my guess on that is because the Tele has a thicker body. And the bridge pan adds something similar to the top end that you get out of the Les Paul's maple cap. We haven't talked about the Paul. That's the next thing I'm going to talk about. But yeah, that's going to be Paul, the big one. A Les Paul's body is mahogany, and it usually has, except for in the mid-50s, it usually has a maple cap on top. It's so, so you get this rich, warm sound from the mahogany, and you get some top end brightness from the maple cap. And if you're talking about a Telecaster, you're getting that brightness from that bridge pan we're talking about. So if you put a um, a humbucker in a Telecaster, and you do you treat it right with uh, with your EQ, it can sound a lot like a Les Paul. And if you want to hear that, put on Jeff Beck's "Cause We Ended as Lovers." Put on the solo of that, and you're hearing a a basically a telecaster with a humbucker in the bridge position let's see let's see if we can if i can find it or jeff beck cause we've ended as lovers let's see solo is probably somewhere a little bit beyond the middle yeah Am I there or? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, that does sound kind of like a Les Paul. My God, the guy can play, eh? Good. Yeah. Uh, the, now, when the cover I, you know, of now, that, the cover of that album, by the way, has him holding a Les Paul. That's kind of right. Funny. He was playing both at the same at the, at that time. He um. He got. He was in the middle of the recording of that album, and he had this old Telecaster that was like <clears throat> he one he used in the Yardbirds that had like he had sanded down the uh, the body a little bit to make it more. Uh, contoured like a strat on the upper back part of the body wait so he actually took a took a sander belt sander to a guitar to to just kind of modify it i mean yeah and it was a vintage 50s telecaster (laughs) and i think it was and i think it was the one the kind that only had the one pickup i can't remember exactly but oh man seymour duncan seymour duncan was working on it for him uh and 
Seymour Duncan loved the guitar, and he traded that guitar to Seymour Duncan for the one that he got, that he played on that track you just heard. It was called um, a telegib. They was what they called it, and it had, I believe, it had two humbuckers, and I may have had a middle position single coil. I can't recall exactly, but it it was a Telecaster with two humbuckers in it, and he used it on that track. And to me, you know, it it kind of is a hybrid sound on that you, when you hear it in the solo. It still has some of that Teleca- Telecaster characteristic to it. But, you know, it had all some, some of that, that humbucker thing going on. For example, I thought Jimmy Page's Telecaster sounded a lot more like a Les Paul on Zeppelin 1. Right. All right, so we've talked a lot about Les Pauls. Um, I should, for the people who don't know what they are, they're a very distinctive, iconic guitar. It's the kind of guitar you see with uh, Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin. You see it with Slash. You see it with Zach Wilde. You see it with um, Joe Perry a lot of the time. It's a uh, it's an iconic guitar that sounds like nothing else. Um, the reason is it's got a thick mahogany body, and like I said, it usually has a maple cap on top of that mahogany, which adds some some bite to the guitar and some sustain. More importantly, they use uh, Gibson. In fact, uses a shorter scale length, and when you combine those two factors together, they make a Les Paul sound different from pretty much any other of the Gibsons that they used when they were just having a slab of mahogany body, like uh, the, without the maple cap. What, what is what is the scale length? It's it's advertised as twenty four point seven five, and there is some articles on that on my website we talk about you know how how that really plays out uh in uh, reality i, I mean but what what is scale length in general scale, scale length is basically uh you were take we're taking the distance between where the string starts at the bridge where it sits on the saddle where it starts to be able to be you know where you know you have to anchor a string at both ends, okay? Uh, but where it's anchored and where it actually is in the playable range—that's from the bridge to the nut. Okay. And and the length is determined by um, by you know math to determine where the frets are supposed to be positioned on the neck, and. A Fender scale is considered 25 and a half inches, and a Gibson scale is considered 24 and three quarters inches. Okay. And that means the, the scale on all Gibson guitars is shorter, which means in some respects it's easier to bend the strings. Yeah, that's that's what I've heard too, is that a, that a Fender Stratocaster is harder to play than a Gibson Les Paul. If they're both set up well, there is some... There is some truth to that, but it depends. I mean, a lot of things depend on, like, you know, if you're someone with small hands, it may be that a Gibson scale is better for you. Um, guys like Jakey Lee, he said he's very small hands. Even when he had his strats built, he had them built with a Gibson scale. Interesting. So, so he had, you know, he couldn't stretch as far. And if you were a guy with very big hands, it might not be that a Gibson is the best choice for you. 
But for a lot of people, a lot of people have both kinds of, of guitars. So it's not that big a deal going back and forth, but it, it, it's noteworthy that when you combine the factors of the design structure, and that, that, that scale length does make a difference in sound. A, a, a longer scale length should produce a little bit more low end because the string's longer and you can, you know, it, it should be a little bit, you get more bass out of it. It's not always true. Uh, there are other factors involved, but uh, in general, your your string bending should be a little easier on shorter scale. I guess that's why bass guitars have super long necks, and they have like a, you know, they're much bigger too, right? Well, they, they, they typically are, but there are short scale basses. Okay. Um, and Gibson made some of them. Uh, and didn't Van Halen have also like the the super short skill uh, guitars? Those were those were kind of um, those were like one off things. Those were not you know production model things that were ever you know he had some some bizarre one off kinds of guitars okay. that he used, they used on little guitars. I don't know where one would get one of those or anything like it. But uh, generally speaking, Gibson had one scale length. Fender had a different scale length. And even within Gibson, the difference between a Les Paul and an SG and a Flying V and an Explorer, these are their solid body electric designs. Okay. The Les Paul has in its sonic frequency a lower mid-range frequency peak than the other Gibsons, so it sounds a little different. Um, it's a subtle thing. It's not easy to, to quantify. Uh, you have to, you know, you have to have very good ears and been listening a long time to hear the difference between what an S, what a what a V sounds like compared to a Les Paul on a recording. You There's know? definitely a difference, right? There is definitely a difference if you know what to listen for. But I mean, it, it's not something the layman's going to pick up on. This is something that guitarists who are experienced will pick up on over time. What's the and typical player that uses a Flying V as their main guitar? Michael Schenker. Okay. You want to play some of that? Yeah, sure. What's a good track that I should pull up? Uh, let's do... Um, let's see. So much to choose from, right? UFOs, I'm a Loser, go right to the solo. Let's see. Let's see, I'll have to skip through that a little bit. See, um... Here we go. It's good. It's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. And a typical SG sound would be ACDC, right? Yeah, anything from Angus, certainly. I would say is much more characteristic than like the Iomi SG sound because Iomi was, was playing SGs that were not always Gibson SGs. So, yeah. 
and if you want a, a characteristic Les Paul sound, um, a, a, a terrific characteristic Les Paul sound, put on Blue Murder's uh, Blue Murder, the Beautiful. title track from the title album, and and go to the solo of that. And you'll... Okay. Man, I wish I could play these songs in their entirety, but... It's all right. This is good because it gives you it gives people listening a sonic reference. Let's see, go back a little bit. See, am I there? Yeah. Better drums too. God, who is that? That's John Sykes, man. That guy's a badass. Yes, he is. <laughs> That's John Sykes. He's a motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's absolutely insanely good. So, um, but Les Paul sounds, classic Les Paul sounds. Obviously, a lot of Led Zeppelin. Obviously, Slash. Obviously, Zach Wilde. Um, you know, all of these things. Randy Rhodes, much of the first album was Les Paul. Um, and you can hear, compared to the Shanker, you can hear it has that lower girth, you know? It's got a thickness to it that the that the, the Flying V didn't have, hmm. right? It's got some ball weight in it that is extra. Right. And, and nothing else sounds like that. And despite what people, you know, will tell you, uh, it's it's hard to get that sound with anything other than that design, right? So then well, we move on to when, like you know. Whenever I go to the guitar store, I always just pick up a Les Paul, and one thing I always notice is that it's like twice as heavy as any other guitar hanging yep, around they, there. They, they're 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 ergonomically horrible. Okay, they all of they're not balanced. All of the weight hangs to one side. Uh, as you get older into my age, you know, strapping one of those things on and keeping it on for a two hour rehearsal, your, your back and shoulders are feeling it at the end of it. It's, it's not ergonomically, uh, good, but there's nothing that sounds like it. And, you know, that's why a lot of people were trying to do the super strat thing, you know, and trying to get some of those kinds of tones without having those, those, Less Paul ergonomic issues. And they sound cool, but it doesn't sound quite the same. No. So that brings us nicely into strats. And um, as I said, the, the Fender Stratocaster is the, you know, the most popular guitar of all time, the most popular design of all time, the most popular body design of all time. Uh, it's not as much about distinctive tone as it is about its sonic versatility. It can do everything. It excels in every musical genre. Every genre, you can play a Strat and you'll be fine. If you bring a Strat, you're, you're going to be good. If you're playing jazz, if you're playing surf music, if you're playing heavy rock, you can do everything with a Strat. 
from Buddy Holly and the Beach Boy Queen all the way up to Ingve levels of, of gain and crunch. You can do that with a strat. It's not it's not as distinctive in its range, but you know, at moments it's very distinctive. Okay. It it will retain a, its own sound, but because of its versatility, it doesn't have quite the um you know, the distinction of maybe a Les Paul or a Telly, in my opinion. Your mileage may vary. I do think that uh, that uh, um the positions that engage like both the middle and the top and the middle and the bottom like the mm-hmm. uh, that those sounds are quite unique and recognizable though yeah there's you know there's a quack they say you know you don't get it so much when you're overdriving it in in heavy rock and metal but there's you know a fender strat sort of quack that you can get you heard it a little on one of the jeff beck tracks but i mean it's it's you know you get that sort of uh, sound that is sort of indicative of a Strat in that respect. Strats also, by the way, respond better than any other design to customization. Eddie Van Halen was not the first person to put a humbucker in a Strat, but when he did, he launched a whole other design trend, which became known as the Super Strat. <laughs> and, that, and the Super Strat is a strat body guitar configured with whatever the hell kind of pickup and tremolo system you want in it. And in the 80s, the Super Strats ruled the metal scene. And they're still popular because they're still a very reliable way for guitarists to get a humbucker sound and a lighter, more comfortable design and and have a tremolo as well. So... uh you know, you saw the advent of that in the 80s. It also became a, a personalization thing because you could have, you know, any kind of custom paint job you wanted on the Strat and it, it'll look good. Uh, no, you know, you don't want to you don't want to take a Les Paul with a gorgeous burst top and, and, and paint a dragon on the front of it or something like that. You and know, they had the, the like the Ibanez ones and the ones that Steve Fye made with the with the hole in it that had right, like exactly. a... <laughs> Those are all variations on strats in one way or another even though that they have you know they're they're using much more uh modern technology and they're using you know different kinds of neck profiles that are much easier to play than the originals super Uh, flat necks and the wide yeah 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 yeah, that became you know we're talking again we're talking about designs that are you know 70 years old now a lot of them close to 70 years old and they're still popular and everything that came since is still sort of based on them one way or another. You can look at the Ibanez gem and, and Satriani's guitar and you, you don't have to, you know, look too far to realize it's still a variation on a Strat and it's got a humbucker in it and it's got a tremolo on it, Yeah. but it's, it's still got, you know, the fender scale length. It's still got, you know, the aspects you can see the ancestry in the Strat. And, you know, the holy grail for guitars was always to get, you know, both authentic Fender and Gibson sounds out of one guitar, right? That was the thing that everybody, you know, just like with with the amps, they wanted to, you know, they want to get the, the tone at low volume. Well, with guitars, the, the, the holy grail was, can I get one guitar that'll give me both Fender and Gibson sounds? 
And in my opinion, you can't do it yet. You still can't do it. Okay. Not really authentically. Super strats don't totally sound like Gibsons. They don't. But the, hub, but don't. the humbuckers give them some of those Gibson characteristics. Uh, but they sound like super strats. That's, that's they what do. they sound like. They, they're they kind do. of their own and thing, in my opinion. They are. They are. But, you know, they do have a humbucker sound in most cases, right? And if you, if you coil cut that humbucker, you can get a fender sound out of them. Thus, you can, you know, you can sort of get yeah. the both of bo- best of both worlds, but it doesn't sound like a Les Paul. No, no. Uh, it, it may sound Gibson-ish, but, you know, the scale length makes it sound different. And the fact that, you know, generally speaking, if you have a Floyd Rose tremolo on it, that has a, a tonal factor that you, you know, you can often hear. Guitars yeah, t- with, those, with those things on them tend to be recognizable if you know what you're listening for. Yeah, explain uh, what what a Floyd Rose tremolo is for those who don't know. So first, most or, of or what the, what a tremolo early, is to begin yeah, with. So the tremolo is what people commonly call the whammy bar or the wang bar. It's it's a lot of what you hear on a lot of Van Halen songs. Um, it's it's the thing that makes the dive bomb sounds and those kinds of sounds. And uh, the problem with the early ones, the, the best ones for years and years, from the 50s to like the late 70s, Fender had the best tremolo system with the Strat. And the problem with it was if you tend to go crazy on that tremolo bar, you go out of tune on your guitar. So, yeah, if you if you pull pull on it or, or push it, you can, can like... Make destroy. You can do this. You, know, you can make this great dive bomb sound. Yeah. Right. But when you come back to where it's at its neutral position, you may be out of tune. Yes. So in the late seventies, this guy named Floyd Rose created a tremolo system that had a locking nut, which means the part that goes up by the tuners of the guitar will lock the strings down in a way such that when you play with the whammy bar, theoretically, you still stay in tune. Theoretically. And it it works. And no, it works pretty well. You have to to go pretty bonkers to go out of tune with one of those. The problem with that is it's cumbersome in other ways. If you're not, if you're not using the bar a lot, it's not worth having. Yeah. So basically you lock the strings at the top of the, at the top of the neck with, with, you know, nuts and at the bottom you also lock them and then you have little dials you can tune them on the bottom because they're locked on the top so you can still micro adjust them but I have Did one your guitar that you showed me have that on it? No, no, it, it had a uh, it, it had a, it has a string through body design oh, but, okay. but I right. do have an Ibanez that has that system and it's a lot of fun right. but right. it's it's more cumbersome and Cumbersome and a pain right. in the ass, and then it's right. fun. If to you be break honest. a if you break a string, oh my live, god, yeah, you're, you're done with that guitar. You have to you know, you have to hand it to a tech and put on another guitar. You can't change the string quickly. Yeah, it's 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 really for those people who have made the the tremolo system a intricate part of their style, like Eddie Van Halen did. Yeah, for, and, um, yeah. What, what's so, a great example of some crazy tremolo work that I can pull up? Um. Uh, where does Van Halen go craziest on his trem? That's a good question. Is it on eruption? Now the thing is, 
on the first album, he's using a vintage Fender tremolo. He's not using a Floyd Rose on the first album. I think so, Steve Vai um, also goes pretty nuts on that thing. Yeah, but where? What? I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm also trying I'm not to sure think. Which songs. Um, uh, I mean, in, in Eruption, there's there's some parts where he just kind of like goes all the way down and up. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think you know that's that's a fair enough sort of place to go, but that's not a Floyd Rose. So, no. um, but if if he would do that on the Floyd Rose, his guitar would stay better in tune than. Yeah, I mean, do it. Find a live clip. Yeah, you'll see him with a live clip. There's a there's a. Let's see. Yeah, this is the album version. I'm, I'm kind of skipping through it too. Let's see. Yeah, here we go. This part. After this famous part, he goes like, Ear. he goes all the way down. That is a whammy bar dive bomb. Yeah. Yes. That kind of thing. So he, he yep. pushes the thing all the way down to the point where the string almost just it's gets loose, pulled into yeah. the magnet. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. So anyway, super strats, like I said, uh, they were very popular in the eighties. They still are popular with people who, who love this style because it, it does give you sort of you can come close to the best of both worlds. And uh, you know, you can, for example, uh do coil cutting, you can put you can put humbuckers in one position, you can put single coils in the other position and things like that, and you can get sort of any kind of custom design you want. In, in that and uh, you know it's it's easier to customize those guitars than pretty much anything else right but um, one other approach to trying to get both the Fender and Gibson tones was Paul Reed Smith and um, they have been selling guitars since the day they opened based on the concept that they think they can get or at least approximate both you know, Fender and Gibson tones. Um, I don't personally buy it. Even their single cut models that are supposed to go after the Les Paul tone don't quite get there because they don't have the Gibson scale length. So that, that was that was their um, so was that really their uh, claim? Like uh, that, that was their. Uh, I think it was an, an implied claim. Okay. Uh, to I, me, they, I don't they've know always they, been kind of their own thing. I mean, they're super gorgeous and super expensive, but and yeah, know. and they were very well made. But they're they're not using a Gibson scale length, and they're not using a Fender scale length. They're in between. So as a result, they've created sort of a hybrid sound. That while it's not a bad sound, to my ears, it really doesn't quite get either of the other things. Um, you know, I think. The idea was we want to make the one, we want to try and go after that holy grail of getting both Fender sounds and Gibson sounds out of one guitar. So they put the scale length right between the two. Interesting, I didn't know that. And uh, they made it, you know, with you know, it's got a tremolo system. 
it's got some Gibson-ish sort of things, and it's got some Fender-ish sort of things, and it's it's but it's also their own thing, and they they made some you know some upgrades of of things that uh, were you know good ideas actually put into production, but the thing is I've been to jams with my old Les Paul, and I've stand stood next to guys who had like shiny new Paul Reed Smith guitars that they thought sounded like a Les Paul until you start playing next to me with a real Les Paul. And, you know, it was like these guys would have these these gorgeous new Paul Reed Smiths and they're thinking, you know, they're getting this big fat Gibson Les Paul tone and then I'd plug in next to them with a real Les Paul and their faces would drop, you know. <laughs> And it's again, it's the old, you know, it's the the fat-free potato chip thing again. It tastes pretty good until you you ab it against the real chip, right? And you know, so Paul Reed Smith, they did create a a really interesting new design that whatever they were trying to do, they created a, a really great guitar that is in its own right. Got it has its own sound. I always looked at it as its own thing, really. Yeah, I think you know that's good. You're a little younger than I am, and you know you would necessarily you would probably hear it as such. But you know it was no secret that when they came out, you know they were trying to put you know maple tops on mahogany bodies that were as nice as the Gibsons. And even though they started out doing double cutaways, they started doing the PRS single cut shortly after, and they, they made the body as thick as a Les Paul, finally, and they put the maple cap on it, and they were going for that Les Paul sound. And despite what they did, I don't think they quite got there because they didn't change the scale length. And that's probably the, the secret sauce that makes a Gibson a Gibson, right? Or Les Paul, I, I Les Paul, rather. Pretty much. Now, the way, you know, we, we talk about these things, there's a lot of guitars out there that are that are pretty much copies of the original designs we've been talking about. And to my ears, the guitars that back in the 70s and early 80s sounded most like Les Pauls were the ones that stole the important design aspects and didn't do the compromises that Paul Reed Smith did. Things like the Ibanez Artist and the Yamaha SG2000. Hold you on. don't see them much anymore because most most people these days, they, you can get a cheaper Les Paul. But back in the 70s, it was either a Les Paul Standard or a Les Paul Custom pretty much. And they were like the top of the line guitar. And most people, if you couldn't afford them and you wanted that sound, you could get one of these two Japanese alternatives and they got the tone because they had the same thickness. They had the maple in the same thickness of mahogany. They had the maple cap, but they also copied the scale length. So hold on, you, you said the Yamaha S two thousand, SG two thousand, SG two thousand. Yeah. So both of these were like very much Les Paul like guitar designs, except they were both double cutaway instead of single cutaway. So share share my screen with you. Okay. Yeah. So you see, it's it's. It's got the same. You can tell it's based on a Les Paul. You look at the thing, and, and everything else about it is like a Les Paul. It's you can see that it's got, you know, the same thickness. It's got the maple cap. It's got the same configuration with the bridge. Everything about it is very much like a Les Paul, except that it's got two cutaways. 
It doesn't. Right? It doesn't quite look as right as the as the last poll, but that's I guess no, I'm used doesn't. to that. But right, it it certainly doesn't. But and, and if you look at the Ibanez artist, you'll see pretty much the same looking guitar, and, except it's less pointy on the on the cutaways. And it's made in Japan, so it's undoubtedly fantastic. Yeah. Are they expensive uh, to to get a hold of uh, the the ones from that era? So back in the day, I remember a friend of mine walked into a music store in nineteen. Ibanez artist, you said, right? Yeah. So you see, it's the same thing, but with with a rounded sort of right. A more rounded cutaway. This one but looks again, better, I think, though. Yeah, I thought they looked better too. I thought they were prettier, but and I knew guys who played them, and they sound just like Les Pauls. But you don't see them very much anymore because now Gibson makes cheaper Les Pauls, right? If you show so, up with this to a jam, though, people are going to think it's cool. Perhaps. I mean, the guitar back, nerd. Back in my, be... <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, the thing is, when I was sixteen years old. And my friend and I went into a music store, and, and he walked out of the music store with a Les Paul Custom that day, brand new off the shelf. Yeah, uh, right. It was eight hundred dollars. Oh my god! In in nineteen eighty dollars. <laughs> okay, now you could get one of these Ibanez artists or one of these Yamaha SGs for like four to five hundred dollars in that era. And now you can get a Les Paul studio for like 400 bucks. So why would you bother with one of these? But uh, Good point. Back, back in those days, if you wanted a Les Paul sound and you didn't have the money, this is what you would get. I wonder if they're expensive. Let's see what they, what they do on eBay from the, from the 80s, right? See Yamaha S SG SG two thousand. Oh, they they're you know between a thousand and two thousand. Yeah, they're generally. good guitars. They're good guitars. Um, they don't have anywhere near the resale value, obviously. Yeah. And by the way, prior prior to this, in the late seventies, Ibanez was making what they call the lawsuit guitars. Where they would just guitars. they would just put it in eBay. Ibanez lawsuit guitars. <laughs> they actually call them that. Oh wow! Those aren't them though. What they were doing was they were copying Gibson designs. Try Ibanez lawsuit Les Paul. Let's see. Oh, here we go. Pre-lawsuit yeah. era. Yeah. See there, you got a 1977 Ibanez lawsuit Les Paul. It's basically <laughs> an Ibanez copy of a Les Paul before, the, and then they got sued. And you know they were in in some ways at that time they were making them better than Gibson was. Oh my God. My friend had an Ibanez lawsuit. Explorer made out of Carina wood. The thing was fantastic. I don't remember. He sold it, I think, when he was getting a real Les Paul. But that guitar, if it was still around, would be worth a lot of money because, you know, Carina is a one of those, it's a super mahogany that you can't get anymore very easily. And not too many things are made out of it. But 
Yeah. So, you know, back in the day before they had, um, you know, these Japanese companies like Orville and Bernie and, um, oh, here, here's a Les Paul era, uh, 1970s, um, Ibanez. Yep. <laughs> so what happened was they got sued. They stopped making these. They started making the Ibanez artist. But, I mean, as guitars, they're at least as good, if not better, from than the original Les Pauls from that era, right? Well, the Les Pauls from that era were kind of terrible. Oh. Okay. In the 70s. Really? So, I mean, in, in, in general, yeah. That was during the period where... Uh, the company that owned Gibson didn't give a damn about quality. And, you know, they were making these horrendous heavy guitars out of multiple pieces of wood and all of this stuff. Um, it was not, you know, a period where they're very well known for having good guitars. Mm-hmm. By the way, 70s was bad for both Fender and Gibson. Okay. I, I do remember reading that at one point the the cheap the, like the air quote cheaper versions that were made in Japan instead of the United States were better than the made in America uh fenders and gibsons yeah they generally cared more about the workmanship and about the quality um you know every now and then gibson would start getting good and and they, their guitars would start getting good and you know they were doing things right and they were you know they were making good guitars and then some company would come along and say, Hey, these guys are doing well. Let's buy them and, and screw them up. And what they would do is they'd come in and they say, okay, you know, we bought you, we don't know anything about guitar making, but you've got to cut costs. So stop using good wood, start using heavy wood, start, you know, instead of using a single piece body, instead of using a two piece body, you know, use a six piece sandwich body. And, mm. and you know, glue all these things together, and it's like, you know, you see, you see the guitars that Pete Townsend played, the the Les Pauls he was playing in the seventies, the ones that you see on like um, the footage in in the Kids Are Alright, where he's playing Won't Get Fooled Again, the ones that have the number on them, where he's playing number six or number one or whatever, with with these Les Pauls, these things were like thirteen pounds, <laughs> and um, they worked for they worked for Pete Townsend, but um, you know. The, these guitars were were not really what the quality was supposed to be. And, you know, when we think of Les Pauls in this day and age and what we want out of Les Pauls in this day and age, there were always exceptions, but those guitars in general were a rarely down period for both Fender and Gibson in okay. the 70s. Yeah. yeah. Like the golden era was... The fifties, right? For for uh, or... for collectability, for what everything is based on, you know, with Les Pauls, the 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 years are the fifties. Uh, now that said, there are plenty of crummy guitars from that period, crummy Les Pauls from that period that that collectors will pay a fortune for, if they look right, but they might not sound particularly good. Okay. But. Uh, a lot of them were wonderful and all of the reissue stuff for both Fender and Gibson harks back to those days. You know, the reissue market of going back and sort of trying to make guitars in the way they made them back in the fifties and early sixties. 
for Fender. You know, Gibson, you know, most of their reissues are 58, 59, 60 Les Pauls. Fender, their, their, their reissues are everything from 1954 through like 1962. Okay. And for, for, for Strats and Tellys. And, you know, they're trying to make them authentically like vintage guitars. And, you know, to a degree, the quality control now is better than it was then. So if you, and, you know, if, if you buy a, a new uh, Stratocaster or Les Paul, you're you're you know you can be pretty sure that you're getting a great guitar. In other words, cer- certainly if you know you know, certainly I, I I can tell you that I bought a four hundred dollar made in Mexico Stratocaster as a beater guitar about ten years ago. And I've used it to death, and it's it's nothing special, but it's a workhorse. It stays in tune. You can't knock it out of tune. The pickups aren't particularly high quality. There's nothing about it that stands out. It's a good working guitar, and it's the kind of thing that I used to leave at my office. And if it ever got stolen, I wouldn't care too much, <laughs> you know. But it, it it I've also traveled with that guitar. I took it on airplanes, threw it in the overhead bin in a gig bag. It comes out. It's now. It's still in tune, you know. It's you know. You go on. You go and jam with people, or go to go. You know, sit. I'd sit in on a gig with a friend of mine or something like that with that guitar. It always did its job. It, it you know. It was a very good guitar for four hundred dollars in the nineteen seventies. If you bought a four hundred dollar Fender guitar, it was a piece of shit. It was a total piece of shit, <laughs> and it was you know often true of the quality control of Gibson as well. And I have uh, in on the website, there's an article on some of this uh, in the interview section. And um, generally speaking, the quality control is much better these days. So if you're talking about, you know, the golden age of this or that, um, the most prized, you know, vintage guitars will still go for six figures in Gibson and certainly five figures in, you know, in most fenders. But, uh, these days the, the guitars that are coming out of the custom shops of both of those companies, the custom shops, mind you, are pretty damn good. Um, what's the difference between a custom shop and, and, a you know, a regular model? Just more quality control, more care taken, more time on the instrument, you know, if you think about, you know, how long it takes, for example, to just finish the ends of frets, all right? If you run your fingers down the edge of a guitar neck and if you can feel the frets sticking out or, or you know, jagged or pointy or anything like that, you know, they're not, they haven't been done well or something like that. It takes, it takes several hours per guitar to, to file those things down by hand, right? Right. So it's, it's labor intensive to do that. And you think about like how many hours can they realistically spend on each guitar in assembly and construction, even on an assembly line, right? So somebody's doing the body, someone's painting the body, someone's doing the electronics, someone's attaching the neck, someone's doing the inlays. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been to the Gibson factory in Memphis where they make the hollow bodies. 
yeah, yeah. That, that's pretty cool to see like there's there's different stations where they do uh you know the painting yeah. they do the neck they do the they do everything yeah one yeah. guy might just do the inlay on the neck you know or one yeah. guy puts the frets in and stuff like that so every you know it's like so that was not what you saw is not the custom shop what you saw is the regular plant but so, it was still like like more than a hundred hours on each guitar and uh Really? Yeah, that, that that's what they said. And they were well, making I mean, if it's, it... well. If it's hollow bodies, it's going to be it's going to be more because you know you're bending wood and all of this stuff. You're yeah. You know, to make a hollow body guitar, you have to you know. I think it was like 130 bend. hours or something. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. For solid body electrics, it's nowhere near that because you're cutting the piece. Out. A machine cuts the body shape out and routes it and everything like that, and then you know you're not you're not having to do all of that work you do on an acoustic and stuff like that. So the custom shop generally, they just take more care. They, um, you're paying for more money for those guitars. They're more authentic. Uh, you know, they're, they're authentic down to using like hide glue to join the neck to the body in the Gibson case. In the Fender hide case. Hide glue? Yeah. You know, you used to talk about, you know, horses would go to the glue factory. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they make the glue out of, like, you know, old horse hide or whatever or oh, something wow. like that. Yeah. So uh, back in the 50s, that's what they had. Now they have all kinds of these kinds of synthetic glues and stuff like that that are probably much better, really. But, you know, if you're going for that true authenticity, there are people out there saying, you know, oh, the hide glue is going to make a difference. If you right. glue the neck on with hide glue or something like that. So the custom shop will do stuff like that, you know. They'll, they'll go back and they'll find out what, you know, what capacitors did we use in the circuit in 1959? And they'll try and get the same kind of capacitors and put them in. Little details that only, you know, really matter to, like, this this nerd appeal uh, <laughs> in, in some respects. And, you know, generally speaking, also the quality of the finish uh, of the top when you're talking about those things. Right. When I had, I told you I had a Gibson SG that was a Tony Aomi SG. All of the inlays were sterling silver cross inlays. Wow. So someone had someone had to cut out, probably with a machine, but someone had to cut out all these gothic crosses of every size all the way up the neck, right? And inlay them into the neck and stuff like that. So, you know, they are the ones doing, you know, they're, they're theoretically a custom shop, even though they're producing you know, guitars of, you know, off the mod, off the line. Right. Right. But it, uh, yeah, I see what you're saying though. It's uh yeah, just, just, um, a more a, a, a version of the guitar that, that gets more time spent on. Yeah. And, uh, and theoretically, you know, they're using the higher quality woods, you know, they might still have some Brazilian rosewood to use on a fingerboard as opposed to the Indian rosewood that everybody's using these days. You might get, you know, some, some higher quality stock, for example. You might get a higher higher figure of maple on the maple top, you know. Instead of having like a triple A maple top, it might have four or five A maple top, which is really highly figured. Okay. You know, better piece of maple or something like that. You know, so But why I, oh sorry. I know, like, for example, Fender bought up, the Fender Custom Shop bought up pretty much all of the lightweight swamp ash that's available in the American market these days. You can't get it anymore. 
uh, to to build strats. Um, wow. They uh, most most strats were either made out of southern swamp ash or alder, and back in the day, I could get you know I I could call up Warmoth and say I want a, a you know a swamp ash body that weighs four pounds or less, and they'd go find me one. And now, um, the guy who's done a couple of my recent guitars, which are custom super strats, I have a friend in California. He's on the site. Um, he says you can't get the Swamp Ash anymore because Fender's bought it all up. So, wow. Fender. So the Fender Custom Shop guitar is coming out. You might get a Strat that weighs seven and a half pounds, and everybody else is is going to weigh eight pounds or more. Huh. And what's the reason why certain woods are very popular like you got uh elder you got maple you got uh, ashwood and they all have they all have different tonal characteristics and there's again on the website there's a um there's a place i have a guide for that let's see if i know where i have that um is it in the knowledge base uh, it's section? in the knowledge base yeah let's see let's if see. i can find it our construction tone woods uh Said it last last time, man. This this website should be would make an awesome coffee table book. If you add some good yeah. photography so if you, to if that, you, if you, yeah. So if you go to um the knowledge base and go to guitars and then tone woods, this is a pretty good uh, layout of the kinds of woods that are in guitars, and it describes some of their tonal characteristics. In, in length and um, elder swamp ash mahogany walnut koa corina soft maple hard maple spruce let's see lace wood yeah this is not I mean this was not my actual uh, article I, I, I basically found this somewhere uh, it was, I guess it was originally posted on um, the gem site site and it was written by a guy named Frank Falbo, and I was so impressed by it. It was better than most of the ones that I've seen. So I contacted this guy, and I said, would you mind if I reproduced it on my website? I think it was fantastic. It's it's the best one I've seen. So um, cool. other, you know, if you go to, you know, if you go to Warmoth, you'll read something similar to this, but uh, this one was better, I thought. Gemsite.com. Yeah, I don't know if it's still there, but it, it it's looks like a forum. Yeah, it was. So still the guy is posted pretty active, yeah. it looks like. Yeah, but I mean I don't know if this article is still there. This guy wrote this thing. And I you know. Alright. <clears throat> what what about uh, guitars that are made out of um plastics and synthetic? I think Yamaha made a couple of those. Yeah, um they're not really renowned for tone. Uh, they're, you know, they were a cool thing to have at one time. Keith Richards had a lot of them. Um, the, you know, the clear plexiglass, uh, yeah, where you can see were, the wires and electronics yeah, and stuff. Dan, Dan Armstrong guitars. They, they, you know, they tend to be heavy. They tend to be not particularly, uh, great sounding. Um, you know, I think. Guitarists in general, where gear is concerned, tend to be very conservative and stick to tried and true kinds of things. 
And if these things had sounded better, I think they would have taken off and you'd still see them a lot. You know, because right. they'd be, you know, be a lot cheaper to make a plastic body guitar than, you know, to use all of this wood. And, you know, a lot of this wood has gone scarce. There are, you know, you don't get Maho Honduran mahogany anymore. You don't get Brazilian rosewood anymore. And, you know, you can't, you can't get those things because they're in rainforests and stuff and they're protected. And, you know, to a degree, rightfully so. But, uh, you know, if people come along and build synthetic guitars and they sound as good as the ones being made of wood, I think you'll see that trend continue. There are guys making them out of carbon fiber. The whole guitar weighs like four and a half pounds. Oh, wow. Now, that can be very appealing as you get older and, you know, the weight of the guitar starts to be a factor in your life, you know? Yeah. But, it, you know, as long as it sounds good, I don't think people are going to care. Have people made guitars out of, like, I'm sure they have, out of weird materials or, or like, steel or metal oh, or God. aluminum? Yeah, there's, or yeah, there's, um, if you go on YouTube, there's some interesting articles. There's a guy who, who just um, made a Strat out of concrete and weighed <laughs> ni 19 pounds. <laughs> yeah, and then there's a guy who, who like, there's guys who making making, they're taking, like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of colored pencils. <laughs> and they're embedding them in epoxy resin and making them out of like colored, you know, colored pencils cut into the shape of a guitar. And, you know, those things are fun and they look, they look cool, but, um, I don't see guitarists in on mass really gravitating to those kinds of things. They're kind of, you know, one-off kinds of things. Right. Like, like gimmicks. Yeah. yeah. Let's see. I think, I think I found it. This dude actually made a made a guitar out of concrete. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the best one I saw was this guy who took he he took tons and tons of ramen noodles. <laughs> and he embedded it in epoxy uh resin and clear epoxy resin and he made a strat out of ramen noodle. I mean he made a ramen noodle strat, which I thought was fantastic. But yeah, this, you know, it's like you lost me at 19 pounds, pal. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it is certainly unique. Yeah. I don't know. I guess the answer is just because you can, but, you know. <laughs> and ring that little so There's lots of these things out, yeah, out there and stuff and people making guitars out of weird things and stuff. Uh, it's a ramen noodle guitar yeah that was hilarious but I don't think it's a video I think it's just a um, oh maybe it is there it is the guy built it out <laughs> well you can do so much with uh, you know just put it in epoxy yeah I mean, I, mean I look at this thing I was like I, I would that it's like that <laughs> is awesome I, I, would, I, would, I would play that oh that's funny Yeah, yeah. It probably sounds terrible, but <laughs> I mean, if you show up with that to a gig, I mean, you're the I only. One. <laughs> yeah, you're the only one having that, and yeah, that I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> see, I want to see the f finished product. <laughs> That's so funny. That's yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> That's very cool, though. Yeah. 
I think um, I also saw a guitar. I think it was even a signature model from one of the guys from from the Offspring. They they wrapped it in duct tape and then then put a yeah. put epoxy over it. So you know, to sort of wrap up this thing, as we what we've been talking about, um, this has been, if you believe it or not, we've been talking for three hours, but this is still just an overview. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot more to it than all of this, but my my thinking here was that you know if you're listening to this and you're you know you're starting down this path as someone who is beginning. You know, it's more important to understand, you know, rather than specific brands and specific models, what things are actually creating the tones so that if you are, you know, if you are uh, a fan of a certain player and you want to go for that kind of sound, you know, you should look at what kind of tubes they're using in their amp and what kind of pickups they're looking in their using in their guitar, because if you can't afford at this point in your life, if you're 16 years old and you can't afford a Marshall and you can't afford a Les Paul, there are other ways to get that sound. If you if you sort of look at what they're what are the components that are making up those tones, right? So so if you were a, a 16 year old kid and you had a you know a couple hundred bucks to spend on on some guitar gear and on a guitar and an amp, what would you buy? Well. The first thing you got to have is a guitar that will stay in tune when you play it. Plays in tune and stays in tune. And like I said, you can get you can get a uh, a made in Mexico Fender these days for a few hundred bucks, 400 bucks maybe or something like that. And you can get, you know, you can get, you know, you can get it based on a strat. Basically, you can get a strat with a humbucker in it. You can get strats with, you know, single coils in them or something like that. Um, if you're definitely looking at guys who are like Gibson guys, I would go looking at, you know, the, the, the cheaper Gibsons or the Epiphones that are, you know, you can get an Epiphone Les Paul for not a lot of money. You can get it, you know, there are, there are certain flying V models and certain, SG models that are not particularly expensive on the, on the beginner end and get something that, you know, inspires you to play. And before you get a better guitar, get a good amp. Okay. And, and the, the more affordable fenders are basically squires, right? Yeah. Um, I can't speak to the quality of that so much. Yeah. I think they're, for the most part, they're pretty good these days. Um, it, that wasn't always true. But, you know, do your web research. And, and if everybody's complaining about the quality of a certain guitar, you know, pay attention to that. You know, I would say, you know, if you're going to buy an $89 guitar, you're you're not going to get very much out of it, you know. Right. Uh, you know, I have a friend who ran, who runs a store in California. He says, you know, the parents will come in. My kid wants to play guitar. I don't want to spend a lot of money. They walk out with an $89 guitar. It won't stay in tune. It won't play in, in tune. In two months, they come back and they trade it in for a $129 guitar, know, which, which, is not, which is not much better. And his point is what you should do at that point 
is go into a guitar store and look at used gear that's better made and right. is used. You know. Okay. Yeah. So so it's and used guitars are not worse yeah. than new ones, right? No. I mean, get a guitar that used to you know get a guitar that used to be twelve hundred dollars and it's marked down to six. You know. Right. Yeah. Or something like that. But again, like I said, if you if you buy you know a decent quality first guitar, if you if you don't spend like $129 on your first guitar and you get something that's actually at like a, you know, a, a truly competent model guitar. Like I said, a beginner level guitar that isn't, you know, it's for someone who wants to actually continue playing. Right. You know, if you spend four, $400 or something like that on that guitar, it will stay in tune. It will play in tune. It won't frustrate you. You at least have a chance. It won't be. It won't be so hard to play that you give up. You know, those kinds of things. It's 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 really about will it stay in tune, and you know, is it going to inspire you to pick it up? Okay. Well, what would be a good uh, beginner's amplifier to to get? That's not too expensive for someone who you know wants to get into it and wants to. If you're truly, if you're truly a beginner, it doesn't matter so much. Um, like I said, there or, are all kinds of things now. Or someone who's it, like serious about getting the dyno sound without really breaking the bang too much. Well, if you, it depends on what, like again, young people these days are much more technologically savvy and all of that stuff. You can get a positive grid spark and you can get an awful lot out of something like that. It's not going to be a gigging amp, but as a first amp, it'll be great. It's got, you know, you know, a lot of features that you can run on your phone um it's got backing tracks built in it'll let you play along with your songs on you know any song that you can play through your phone you can play along with through the amp positive grid spark i, I never heard of those yeah and they're under 300 dollars. all right so it's an amplifier that hooks up to your to your phone yep that's and cool you can, and you and you can have like it's got a zillion amp models built in, and you can change that. It's got the effects built in. Uh, it's it's really cool for what it is, but it isn't it isn't a live gigging amp in the t in, in the kind of context we're talking about. Don't you think that's that's kind of overwhelming though? If you're just starting out, I mean, if you have a, I think it would have overwhelmed my generation, but I you know, yeah, that's kid, a good point. Kid, kids who are 16 years old, it's not going to be too much for them. They're going to love that you can run it from your their phones, I think. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess I'm getting a little old too. I have one. It, it's fantastic. I mean, I don't use I don't use it enough because it what I don't have what I usually do is I practice with headphones on. So um I use something else usually, but it, it you know, it you can it will like you can play a riff, right? Suppose yeah. you come up with a riff and you're playing this riff, you can tell the amp, give me a backing track based on this riff. Oh my god. And it'll get, it it'll give you bass and drums in the key you're playing, in the genre you're playing. That's insane. So it's like I've got this riff in A, it goes to D and then it goes to E. And then, you know, you tell this thing, I want a rock backing track and it'll give you a rock backing track once you play the you know you play the riff into the machine wow. it reads it and it gives you a rock backing track or a jazz backing track 
or a country backing track or whatever it is. That is really cool. I want to get one of those things now. Yeah, they're amazing. I mean, it's not perfect, but this is where it's going. But again, this is not getting true dinotone. This is an approximation of it. And for in the house, it's fine. Right. I got mine. I was able to dial up my baseline Gary Moore tone in like five minutes. Hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. That, that's yeah. a lot of uh, a lot of features in in one little device there. Yeah, and they were so in demand that you had to wait six months to get one. Wow! Because they didn't they did not anticipate the demand, and then COVID hit. And they were they were in production and like, I think I ordered mine in like October, of last year, and I didn't get it till like March. <laughs> yeah. So you know you may wait, but um, they're pretty cool, and it's 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 got a nice forty watt little cabinet. It's got a wood cabinet to it. The speakers are not big, but they're good. It's it's definitely a practice amp, and you can also record with it. But the, like a full uh, like a gig amp, you need to you need some tubes. Well, it's not even that. It's just it's just not the right kind of amp for gigging. It, the right. speakers are not big enough and stuff like that. But for recording, you can take a direct line out into your computer and record with it, um, which for beginners is a great way to to get you know good guitar tones recorded if you're if you're recording in garage band or something similar you can just run out of this thing directly out into your audio interface and record cool yeah all right well we've we've covered a lot of ground today again we've, yeah we we talked for uh, three and a half hours at this point yeah it's one of the, one of the one of the long ones this one yeah, I hope it wasn't too bad. No, it was great, um, man. It was just like last time. I I thoroughly enjoyed every minute of it. It's uh, you, I've I've learned a lot personally here, and I'm sure the listeners have too. Is there anything you uh, you want to use as as you want to say as closing words or? Uh... Well, like I said um, at the beginning of this thing, these are mostly observations and opinions based on my experience. Your mileage may vary. Um, you know, these things have changed a lot over the time since the 70s to now. But the, the, the principles that I tried to focus on stay true to this day. And while very few people are, are trying to run high wattage amps at full power these days, you can you can still get those tones with, with smaller rigs these days if you know what you're looking for and you know what you're doing. And, and a little bit of the, you know, this history and this background will sort of serve as sort of a guide to like saying, okay, you know, my feeling is that young people these days are probably never going to have the experience of standing in front of a, a, a full Marshall stack with eight speakers and a hundred watts blasting their pants legs off. And, 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 you know, unless you've experienced that, you don't know what you're missing. Right. It's, it's a really amazing experience. It's a unique feeling. Yeah. It is. And it's, 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 it's more than just what your ears perceive. You feel it through your whole body. You feel it coming up through the floor and through your feet. And, 
even when you scale it down to seven watts, you can still get a flavor of what it was. And you can still get, when you get a small amplifier cooking hot, it'll still do the trick. And, you know, there's a lot of ways you can go with it without having to do that. And you can buy, you know, all of these amps that do, that do great master volume circuits now, and you never have to run the amp that hard, and you can still get all of this, you know, this, this crunchy tone. And most of the time, it's just fine, and it'll be, you know, good. But, you know, there was an extra dimension to this that um, if you were aware of it, you don't want to lose. Right. So uh, the, the whole thing with the website was the idea is to sort of try to pass the torch of this knowledge and uh, make sure it doesn't get lost because, you know, there's a generation of players that are, you know, Eddie Van Halen was only 65, but, you know, all of our, our elder statesmen of, of heavy rock are in their 70s now. Right. And I doubt many of them will be around in their 90s other than Keith. Keith will never die. But um, How is that guy still alive? I have no I, idea. I don't know. But um, everybody else, you know, considering the lives they led and how hard they, they led them, it would be shocking to imagine that all of these guys are going to be around that much longer and you know we don't want the knowledge of what made them sounding so awesome to go with them right i think that's a that's a great conclusion to this uh, great podcast and if you um if you're listening to this one be sure to listen to the previous one too because that gives a good introduction to the dinosaur rock guitar in general, uh, the the whole idea behind it, and the the players that are celebrated within this genre. So um, yeah, so there's dinosaurrockguitar.com. Is there anything else you want people? Well, to you should probably make a note somewhere when you're putting this together. Listen to the first one first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it on top. I'll pu I'll put it in the in the intro uh, when I uh, record that one. Yeah. So, all right, uh, Dinosaur Dave, thank you for coming on again, man. I hope we'll, it was uh, my pleasure. It was great, man. I really enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, maybe it seems we have much more to talk about. So I, I hope we can do it once again in the future. Okay. Sounds good to me. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, Seats. All right. That's We're it. We're out? Yep. Cool. That was, that was great, man. We, we went for three and a half hours. Jesus. <laughs> well, this was another episode I really enjoyed doing because I've learned a lot here. Dave is, uh, he, he knows so much about this stuff. It was awesome. It was the perfect compliment to the previous episode. And uh, once again, thank you for coming on, man. And once again, be sure to go to thepolarizer.com, sign up to the newsletter so you never miss an episode. Every time a new episode comes, you will get an email, so go to thepolarizer.com, leave your email address, and you will get an email every time a new episode drops. And if you're watching this on YouTube, be sure to subscribe and click the bell so you get a notification every time a new episode comes. And go to thepolarizer.com, click on the Amazon button to go to amazon.com to get your purchases that way. That way we get a little kickback every time you buy something on Amazon through our website. Also, check out the Alert iPhone app 
search for alert a-l-l-e-r-t in the ios app store for food allergies if you are traveling if you are traveling with food allergies and go to onnit.com o-n-n-i-t.com and use the promo code polarizer to get a nice discount on your first order and also go to dinosaurrockguitar.com I mean, we already mentioned that a million times, but really check it out if you're into rock music. This is a fantastic website where you will find anything about this genre in particular. It's, uh, it's one of the first websites I discovered on the internet, and it's, uh, it's still the best knowledge base when it comes to this subject. And follow, follow me on Instagram, that's at DutchDiederich. Follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Dutch Dietrich, where I post updates and photos and updates around the podcast. And once again, thank you all for listening, and uh, I'll see you next time. Tot ziens.